Greetings from the Seventh Circle. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Seventh Circle of Film. Yes, fucking somehow we continue doing this shit to get to a new season. I'm your host, Kieran, and joining me today is a longtime friend of myself, a fellow horror enthusiast, and my own little Cenobite to take me through life. Mike, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing brilliantly. How about you? Doing good, doing good. Less good now, I've just realised we've watched the only two good fucking films in this franchise, and we've now got eight films to go (laughs) after this shit, but... I'm not looking forward to when they go to space, or when they... Or when they generally change, like the actor for Pinhead. I've had worse, to be fair. I mean, Fat Pinhead isn't great. It's such an iconic original role. I think go to space. That actually fucking happened. They go a proper, like... Yeah, you not right, seen? Yeah. Have you not? Um, oh, it's it's in the fourth film that goes to space. It's on a space station. I have kept my head blissfully in the sand through most of the other films, or have been in some drunken stupor while watching the third and the fourth at some point in my life. Is there a fucking like Leprechauns three? Leprechauns go back to the hood, just Hellraiser style, where he fucking has guns at sideways and shit. No, I only know of uh, the fact that they get to space. I also know what the plot is of some of the later ones, and it's just sort of weird. Like, it's not... Like, the plot on the surface doesn't necessarily sound like it'd be awful. It just sounds kind of weird. Uh, For the sake of all that stuff, and listeners here, obviously, based on The Hellbound Heart, absolute classic by Clive Barker, and the comic series, which I sent over to Mike before we started off, we're not going to touch on most of that for the sake of having stuff to talk about when we get to the later films and not wanting to bash my fucking brains in against the wall, not wanting to call the fucking Cenobites myself and foregoing the pleasure part, just going through pain. I wonder if that was like the fucking... The Cenobites found a box and all they found were the fucking Hellraiser sequels. Just watch them on fucking repeat again and again and again. Enjoy it, you fat I think the Cenobites would really, 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 really like the sequels for Hellraiser. Uh, Yeah, it's a shame that... That Steph isn't here for these ones, but now he's fucking gone. I can start watching the good films and I have to torture him. Every other time he's going to be so pissed off <laughs> that we finish on the fucking Resident Evil shit. And now we're going on to the good ones. Um, so I'll go through all the cast and crew stuff before we probably kick in. Uh, this one, just a warning for everyone as well. I know I often say when we have bad stuff come through that it's just going to be ranting. There isn't going to be any ranting during this, I don't think. Mostly, at least from my side. I don't know about you, Mike. I think you quite no. you like these as well, right? Yeah. Generally well received. In fact, very well for me. That they're, they're borderline perfect. You get the odd critic, obviously, like uh, Roger Ebert getting the point five out of five, which fuck me. But um, yeah, I, I am generally going to praise this. What we are going to do though is a bit more philosophical than usual. Uh, dance about uh, the points just a touch. Go into some, um, you know, I'm not even going to pretend to know ancient philosophers. I'm not going to sound fucking smart. I'm just Googling ancient smart people. Uh, that shows you my calibre in this fucking uh, venture. Uh, Mike can touch on that a bit more in the specifics than I can. But yeah, just kind of moving through that. Mm. Oh, got water for once as well. Not drinking. I want to be lucid. Really? Oh, well, I mean... Uh, Vaguely lucid. I did have red wine earlier to wake me up. Have a glass of whiskey on hand. But uh, Hellraiser, based on the Hellbound Heart, directed and written by Clive Barker. Film-wise, he's a guy from Liverpool. He's uh, done Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions, and the only film he probably done for this was a short called um, "Fuck's Sake Salome," 
I'm going to go with, which really short film. So it's kind of impressive that he went into this not knowing the difference between a fucking, as he said himself, a 35mm lens and a 10mm. He was just completely clueless and he did a really good fucking job on that basis, uh, especially visually on this. Uh, Cast-wise, we've got Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty um, in the... You seen the Warlock films? I have not. Four. They've got... Uh, oh, I can't remember his fucking name now. Uh, Julian Sands. Are they horror films? Yeah. It's <laughs> debate. It's like Wishmaster on a budget. Right, it sounds like some sort of Dungeons and Dragons type fantasy thing. <laughs> it's not far off, actually. It's just like an all-powerful warlock going around from the Medi. Actually, no, it's like Highlander, but with a uh, warlock villain. Basically, is, is the closest I can come to. Uh, they're not... They're, they're fun. They're not great, though. Uh, also, Mikey and Livers Ain't Cheap. Which, fucking, that's either, like, Alcoholic Anonymous's fucking headlining act or a film about, I don't know, Mexican drug cartels taking livers out. I have no idea even where to approach that. Uh, Andrew Robinson plays Larry, who's been in a lot more. He's done a lot better for himself. Uh, Dirty Harry, uh, the classic Cobra, Pumpkinhead 2. Charlie Varick. Not seen Cobra, I've seen Dirty Harry. I thought you had seen Cobra. Uh, have I? <laughs> Isn't that the thing you made that guy sign? Anaconda. Oh, Anaconda, oh, right. So classic Cobra's like, um, I think a G.I. Joe thing. Uh, Claire Higgins, Julia, who were uh, The Worst Witch, which was a show recently. Uh, the Covenant, Spring 1941. Not much, to be honest. Uh, Sean Chapman, who is British, actually. They just uh, dubbed over all his lines with an American. Poor fucking guy. <laughs> Did he look dubbed to you? Sound dubbed? He, there was definitely something off about him, but I, I didn't realise he was dubbed, honestly. I bet if you re-watch it, you get it now. After after I kind of watched through it, yeah, you can see there's something ever so slightly off. The voice is really good, the dubbing um, itself. It, it really fits the character. But yeah, you can kind of tell after. It's because they uh, didn't think a British guy would sell well to audiences. Which I think is quite bizarre, considering whether the film itself is, is British, but then... Like these days, a lot of films tend to have a lot of British people in them. Yeah, like uh, the, like the new Star Wars films and. Yeah, I mean it's it's a classic it's, accent, especially in terms of horror. You know, going back to yeah. uh, Hammer House. And like, he's a villain as well, so yeah, the, the British villains quite the quite the common thing. So maybe it's just an insult against us. I didn't think we could pull off sexy, maybe sexy I villain. I can see that. So if you had we had Dracula, that's about to call fucking Christopher Lee's Dracula sexy man. <laughs> I mean, he was a lot of things. <laughs> fucking Nosferatu got more fucking pussy than he did. <laughs> nah, Christopher Lee is pretty cool. I think when it comes to a fucking choice between Christopher Lee and Nosferatu, I had to put one in. Borderline interchangeable at that point. I don't. I think that's completely unfair. <laughs> I think that's completely wrong. I like Nosferatu. Um, uh, finishing off, we've got uh, Doug Bradley, also British. Uh, who plays, in this film, Leeds Cenobite. He's not actually mentioned for Pinhead, which is a moniker that uh, famously Clive Barker hates because he thinks it's a little too on the nose, really hammering the nail on the head. <laughs> I've, got, I've got more. I've got lots more. Uh, he was in uh, Wrong Turn 5, subtitle Bloodlines. Wrong Turn's like a Hills Have Eyes kind of thing with hillbillies and shit. Uh, he's the narrator for a Cradle of Filth, which... Like, tell me if I'm wrong, both of us thought were a fake band from the IT crowd. Yeah, I thought it was just made up by uh, 
Richmond in IT crowd. I thought there's a fucking like um album list. I remember the song he gave uh, Codin fodder, coffin fodder to uh Denim when his fucking mother died or his father yeah. died. Yeah, I fully assumed that it was all fake and just made to be as excessive as fucking possible, like this Marilyn Manson style shit. But no, apparently they fucking exist. Yeah, it's quite surprising. I don't know if he does it in the um, Hellraiser style. I have to listen to them before we do the next lot. Uh, Also in Nightbreed, which directed by Clive Barker. Uh, Pumpkinhead, Ashes to Ashes. A lot of fucking Pumpkinhead people in all these films. I don't know why couple of the credits uh, composed by Christopher Young, who's done loads of stuff. Uh, he did Nightmare on Elm Street 2, so I just found out which weakest Nightmare on Elm Street, but they've all had very good uh, soundtracks behind them. Uh, the Fly 2, Spider-Man 3, the uh, whole emo spider shit. <laughs> so, another fucking horror film. And uh, Drag Me to Hell, which was the Sam Raimi film, if you remember that one. The Gypsy Woman, like, fucking bank teller. Food based fucking thing. No, I'm surprised that Christopher Young has composed some sort of like, it's just a sequel, so not really that the big headline first films that tend to be what everyone remembers, yet the soundtrack for Hellraiser is incredible. Oh, spectacular. Yeah. Might as well quickly touch on it now, to be fair. The soundtrack for Hellraiser, when you compare it to other horror films around the time, when I'm thinking like um, The Thing, which is very subdued and very uh, bassy, uh, 28 Days Later, Halloween, um, which is very, you know, eccentric and, you know, jumps all about the place, which fits that. Uh, Hellraiser stands out as being, I don't want to say reserved, but it's got something else to it, you know? It's got a kind of awe factor that kicks in that, um, oh, uh, revered. reserved? I would have thought that almost the opposite of reserved. Not reserved, yet, revered more. It's yeah. like... Yeah, it's, it has this sort of like religious undertone to it. it. Kind of reminds me of something you'd hear, sort of going into a church. But if you showed it me outside of the context, I'm not sure I'd immediately um, link it to horror. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's gonna be pushed on. Like, the first thing that came to mind for some reason for me was the Home Alone soundtrack, the theme to that, uh, which has got some of the same kind of piano notes. Obviously, the Home Alone one goes off on a far different note when you go to the later parts. Um, but for something like this, uh, Hellraiser, I think it works perfectly. The theme song is absolutely brilliant. One of the really underrated classics. So, budget box office, it did pretty damn well for these kind of things. Budgeted for just one million US dollars. Uh, which... It's such a low budget. Mm, yeah. Is that just the norm? norm back then? Is that considered a lot of money? Adjusted for inflation? That's nothing. That's No, that's not even adjusted. Um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, anything like that. Just like... It's just nothing at all, especially considering like they weren't exactly. I I know certain parts. They're definitely you can definitely see where the special effects aren't brilliant, but generally they do. They quite bolster the walls all out with the special effects, especially considering the low budget. Yeah, yeah, they, they do a really fucking good job. You can you can see where it ran out, and a lot of it is uh, obviously practical. I think most of it, to be fair, they've got stop motion. Occasionally, any um, CGI. I, mean, I don't think there's any CGI at all. I guess there might be at the very, very end. It's just yeah, stuff with the uh, the light show where they're being sent back. There's some stuff done there that I'm pretty sure is um, computer based, but most of it, yeah, is is really, really fucking well done. 
there's a couple like rubbery fucking Doctor Who moments just with Frank, but yeah, generally speaking, uh, it's yeah for one million, it, that's fucking incredible. It's got that ninety percent spent on the just makeup, special effects, and the casting. To be fair, because whoever the casting director is in is in this, fucking nailed it. <laughs> I think they were very lucky to have the people audition that they had to audition on such a low budget. Oh Jesus, yeah. And you get this with horror films, to be fair. You get um, stars that kind of come into their own after. Famously, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you got Johnny Depp that somehow managed to pull out their hat. And Heather Lambercamp as well, I think, uh, is a real darling of the film genre. But yeah, in this, they did fucking exceptionally to get what they get. And in the second film, to be fair, they got uh, lucky. Doug Bradley. Could you imagine Doug Bradley? Uh, anyone else as Pinhead besides Doug Bradley? I can, but I wish I couldn't. These <laughs> other people take the fucking role later on. Well, yeah, but, like, they just don't, you know, they don't do a very good job, do they? They're about as well. My dad dressed up as Pinhead um, for Halloween one year in my fucking costume. And for context, I'm, I'm not going to say scrawny, but I'm, like, 6'2", I weigh, like, 13 stone. I'm not exactly massive. My dad is about the same height as me and weighs about 17, 18 stone. He fucking stretched it to the limit. He looked like a more fucking authentic pinhead than the later <laughs> versions. Fucking diabetic pinhead. is <laughs> a scarier fucking concept. Uh, Trivia-wise, Doug Bradley originally didn't want to go for the role uh, of lead Cenobite. It was given between that and the, the mattress man that leers at the barely in-age girl of Christy, Kirsty. Which, why you'd want to go for that and not the fucking horror villain, I don't know. Um... In his case, it was because casting agency wanted them to be able to see his face because this was his first proper big role. And he was thinking, you know, I want some people to go, oh, that's who that is, let's cast him in this. Which kind of makes sense because he wasn't recognised at the casting crew party and people just got annoyed by his presence. <laughs> they thought he was just a fucking drag along. He's this random guy, yeah. Yeah, poor fucking guy. I mean, six hours in the makeup chair to uh, achieve the effect that he had. On his face, which it's a shame that I presume someone must have gone around and say, "Oh yeah, that's Doug Bradley. He was the fucking main Cenobite." Eventually, they would have had to, but like, yeah, you, I mean, it probably was just sort of this awkward moment when people slowly realised, "Ah, that's who you are." I hope he just got kicked out. <laughs> Went to that fucking level, and then just, oh fuck. <laughs> Where's the guys playing? Oh, they just, did they assume he was going to come in costume or some shit? Well, just some weird birth defect. <laughs> Had some bizarre idea as to what, yeah, the the guy who, I don't, may, maybe, maybe they were looking for the guy who played the lead centre but they just couldn't work out who it was. So then they just, just sort of assumes the guy didn't like to come to parties or something. I mean, to be fair, it's one hell of a transformation. Not even just on a visual level, but on um, an acting level. He's he's got a certain gravitas to him that I can't imagine. I mean, unless you're a fucking like a Lawrence Fishburne type, uh, you're never going to be able to pull that off in real life that uh, otherworldliness it's it's absolutely incredible the film was originally going to be named after the titular novella but the studio said and I quote it sounded too much like a hallmark romance film uh, which is the fucking terrible things like kitschy fucking professional woman falls in love with handyman and fucking eventually moves into a small town and quits her job to start painting fucking miniature horses that kind of crap Clive couldn't think of a name for the film, so he kind of opened it up a suggestion. The best one I found in some suggestions was uh, a 60-year-old woman put forward what a woman will do for a good fuck, which uh, that would have been great. He himself 
had uh, Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave, which for me is a bit too on the nose. Hellraiser's great. It's uh, nice and kind of succinct. The fucking the Hellbound Heart doesn't sound romantic at fucking all. Hellbound Heart, I think it would. I think it would have worked, but I, I kind of get it. Like, because you have to sort of have seen the film to understand how Hellbound Heart relates to the film and how it isn't romantic. But I think on just the without knowing at all what the film's about, Hellbound Heart does sound a little. A little romancy. I mean, if we're going romantic, to me, that sounds like a fucking guy going into prison with a little tattoo on his arm or some shit. The drugs and that kind of crap. That That's as close <laughs> as I can get for a link to some romance kitschy shit. And that's edgy, at least. Fucking, it's hellbound. How do you have that in a fucking title and go, oh, romance, fucking, let's get uh, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling to come around. We'll do The Notebook Part 2 and call it Hellbound Fucking Heart. <laughs> So far away from it. Uh, oh yeah, Claire Higgins, who plays Julia, never actually seen the film because she hates horror. She walked out ten minutes into the um, screen. That's yeah. Kind of like she just hates all horror films. Yeah, she can't stand them. She screams. Oh right. Uh, it, it's a classic. Uh, being on set is a lot less scary, obviously, than um, being in the actual film. Uh, it was the thing for oh the girl in the Exorcist whose name I Linda Blair. She obviously couldn't watch the films when she was a kid. Uh, but sat through it and acted in it fine. But you've got people all around you, you've got cameras and stuff going on, it's always less and it cuts constantly. So, yeah, she's never seen it, but she screams. She screamed in the premiere as well. A uh, uh, lot of the dialogue dubs said um, Frank, particularly because Roger Coleman, I believe, this production company, said it was going to be an easier, easier sell if it was American. I hope that's not the case. Well, really I hope that, that, like, that wouldn't actually be true. Yeah, I, I think it is I to an extent. I mean, you get... When you're talking recent films, um, shit like uh, Squid Game have come out recently. I'm not a massive fan, but obviously a big hit. The public kind of turning around on Japanese, Korean stuff, and other uh, aspects of cinema. I think there's still that American centrism. There is, that's... but I think that... It's the main, mostly because they're speaking another language and you have to read subtitles. And yeah, I don't want to read no shit while I'm trying to watch my thing, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it's depressing, but... Well, I get it, to an extent. For the general public. I wish it wasn't the case, but yeah, it kind of always will be. And finishing off, yeah, the MPA cut a shitload out. Like, ridiculous amounts. There's um, a tactic that people often do with the MPA, where uh, you'll put in a scene that's so ungodly levels of obscene so like insanely otherworldly what the fuck are you doing putting that in there like um, there's I know in, I think it was Indiana Jones had like a fucking leg amputation scene or something put in it right. that was so ridiculously graphic just so basically the um, the people allowing the films to go forward go okay you can make it a 12 if you get rid of that fucking leg chopping scene so basically you can kind of shuffle in other shit behind the curtains to just allow it through, because the MPA can be a bit finicky. A um, couple of highlights of what they said about Hellraiser. When Frank is having sex with Julia, they said two um, frosts into her ass is fine, but three <laughs> frosts is one too many. Yeah, uh, they also had uh, the hammer scene. That has to be cut down a lot. There's really a lot more to that. Um, when Kirsty's rummaging around in a fucking uncle's sarcophagus stomach, she uh, pulls shit out. That, a load of that was cut as well. They had like an intestine drag-out thing. Otherwise, it's just general like gore things you'd expect to come from this sort of stuff. That, to be fair to 
the NPA. Uh, actually, not to be fair to them, they're a bunch of fucking up their own ass, dusty twats. Fucking, they have to be brought out of hiding from the same fucking cryogenic tube that Madonna is every five years just to review this shit and then go back into their antiquated fucking moron 50s cartoon world cuphead style. But to be sort of fair to them, um, I think this this was a lot harsher than anything else I can think of from the late 80s. Beyond like the, the really, you know, uh, low budget, really grindhouse level stuff like Driller Killer. Um, I'm trying to think what what else came out before this. I know uh, the film that Paul W. Sanderson did, Event Horizon, that came after, didn't it? That was like mid 90s. That shit was cut massively, hugely cut, and that that was harsher. A lot of the stuff in that that was left in, far harsher. Portrait of a Serial Killer, that was relatively close. But otherwise, I don't there's much around this era that's... I mean, obviously you've got shit like Salo and stuff, but NPA don't touch that with a fucking 30-foot stick. Not that I blame them. Yeah, no, not, not in the slightest. For that, they can just leave that and go, yeah, just don't fucking watch it. Why are you getting us to review this shit? You know those uh, sites that parents review films for kids? You know, they touch that for some fucking reason. <laughs> Yeah, like any fucking parent that's going to go around and check, is this suitable for my child? Oh, yes, sailor. Hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, even Hellraiser, like, is this suitable for my kid? Fucking what do you think? Just look at the cover, you <laughs> It's actually a fair bit for once. It's quite nice to have a load of trivia. I kind of missed that through Resident Evil the Final Destination. There's fucking nothing to touch on. Dueling all of those. There's actually fun shit around the production of these ones. But yeah, jumping into film proper, as you both said, we really like the film. Yeah, the film's really good. And the second one. Um, I'm a big fan. I mean, the second one I, I also really like, but I don't... I think the second one has uh, kind of decisions made of it that I personally disagree with. Of just the, the sort of the production and the way the films... Well, there are just sort of certain scenes, mainly flashbacks, that I don't really think should have been played that often. Like, yeah, unnecessary kind of stuff. Yeah. You push back to the first. I've always said that if you're doing a horror sequel, uh, nine times out of ten, just assume that they've seen the first one. Because no one fucking jumps into the sequels. And if they do, it's their own fault, frankly. If you fucking go straight into it. Like, Final Destination does this shit all the time. And uh, Resident, Resident Evil's fucking terrible for it. There's that loads of flashbacks. Not flashbacks, but you get like a six-minute scene at the start of every film where Alice goes over the backstory of um, all the previous yeah. fucking films. I remember, yeah. It's just, why would anyone sit there and watch the fifth one on their <laughs> own without having watched all the rest? Why the fuck would you do that? If For Hellraiser 2, I can get the gist of the plot without the fucking flashbacks. And even if I don't, it's quite fun to kind of piece this shit together. And why would they fucking watch it? For watching the first one, who goes, oh, you know what, we should start with the fucking philosophical, weird, fucking nihilist pleasure film from this time. Yeah, that's something to grab off the shelf and just shove in the weird gore porn shit. Mm. Let's skip the first one. No one's fucking just taking this off the shelf in Blockbuster. The film itself starts off, obviously, um, on a what, what I consider the Scream start. I know this came before Scream, but uh, a, a tonal setting... For the whole thing, we have one scene at the start, a kind of basic uh, killer attacks the victim, you set the rules, you set the tone. Best way to start a horror film, or at least one of the best ways to start a horror film if you're not going to be weird about it. Same uh, done in 
yeah, just most fucking slashers out there and any good film that really wants to set the tone for it, Wishmaster, especially if these supernatural films where you're not really given um, an inkling as to what the actual rules are for the monster, where it's, it's left up in the air, uh, necessarily, you know, in this case, I'm not going to disparage that, especially when you've got the kind of Lovecraftian Eldritch vibes and the supernatural, you're not even meant to really know what the fuck these things are. Uh, yeah, uh, Frank. Uh, is it fair to say our main villain, Frank? I think Frank Especially... is the villain because I think everyone else yeah. isn't necessarily a villain. They're kind of like their alignments a little bit more on the. I mean, everyone's evil. Like, yeah, there's a lot of evil characters, but Frank's kind of just a dick, and I think that's worse than being evil because you're evil. You know, like say like a, a dragon. A dragon's evil, but a dragon's not a dick. A dragon's just evil. Was being a dick. I think that's worse. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get what you mean. With, with um, there's, there's no purpose behind that. There's no drive. No kind of. Uh, well, actually, for Frank, that's that's unfair. There is a drive behind him. A definite fucking very sexual fucking drive. Like a fourteen year old who's just in tits the first time. Level drive. But uh, it's uh, carnal. Yeah, I suppose would be the term. It is. It's definitely his. Well, anyway, like, you know, it starts out and. You see, you see him tapping into this carnal drive, and he he gets the puzzle box, doesn't he? Then there's the lady who's who says like the first words are, "What's what's your pleasure?" <laughs> Do you think this is the same guy who sold the gremlins in that fucking film? It's just a generic Chinese man <laughs> who goes around selling this shit. Well, just... I don't know if they get them off like a discount shop. If horror movie villains just grab them and go, yeah, he he's fucking trustworthy. Let's sell shit with him. They sell really bizarre little horror doodads that make your world really fucked up. Why anyone would fucking buy this? That I never quite. I'm presuming he like researched into this stuff then. Or well, um, the occult and such. Yeah, and didn't just like buy a puzzle box because fuck it, something to do on a Sunday. And I've I get the impression the that in this world. world, the box. And, like, the mythos around the box is actually something which, like, yeah, is, is, is heard of to some extent or other. Like, if you're someone who, who is into the occult or someone who spends a lot of time on, on the dark web in this universe, you'll probably be familiarised with the box in somewhere or another, have seen it somewhere. Kind of like Babylon, like Babylonian fucking gods and shit, like, just off on the periphery, but enough if you looked into this shit, you'd find it. Eventually, I suppose. Yeah. Um. So in terms of the actual box, um, I it coupled like tiny fucking theories around it. So in actually opening it, there's no um, real rhyme or reason. You just fucking stroke it like it's a cat. On and I, I think it's not actually like a puzzle box per se. Is he says um in the second film? Oh, it's a quote. It is desire not... that calls our. No, it is not hands that call us. It is desire. Yeah, fucking that. Perfect. Bang on. Uh, that that kind of line to me suggests, and with the people who actually open it during this, besides like Kirsty, I suppose, in the first film, um, it's all people who you know desire and fucking want something, which is lucky for like. The Cenobites, because otherwise, I suppose they just have a load of like fifty-year-old housewives with nothing better to do, and very autistic people who like puzzles, just littering hell. The only people who fucking bother to start solving Rubik's cubes. Well, I think you do make a good point here, but I don't think it's necessarily the point you you were trying to make, which is that the world is full of plot holes because, (laughs) 
Like, the box isn't a puzzle box, yet it is a puzzle box, yet it can be solved as a puzzle box, but it can also be solved by desiring to solve it. So does that make it a puzzle box, or a box that you solve because you have a desire to open the box and it just opens for you because you're a filthy fuck, it's like a sick bastard, you know what I mean? And the, the films, both of these, don't really seem to have made a concrete decision as to what it is. Well, in his old book, Curiosity Killed the Cat, right? But a cat doesn't have opposable thumbs to push forward. That That's how I put it in my own head. It's that you require a want, a desire of something, be that just curiosity to see how it opens up, and it will open up of itself. Because it, do, it does seem to have no fucking mechanics to it properly. It has no uh, convention, really. It's not a fucking Sudoku puzzle. You get to the end, you win. A fucking holiday trip with the Cenobites. Well done. Well, in the, the comics, it's made by the... It's made by Philippe Le Manchard, who's uh, like a French toy maker. Like a really fucked up French toy maker. So... <laughs> so a French toy maker. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So, um... He was meant to have made this box... I've seen in like the later movies, it's like he made the box. He made the box for fun. He made the box just as an ordinary toy. Yeah, in the comics, he was like made the box because he's a twisted fuck. So yeah. if a human can, if this box is made by a human, then you'd expect that it would be, you know, would actually, yeah, would require some sort of physical, non-supernatural parts for it to work. Well, I don't know. It's all very wish-washy. It all doesn't make any sense. But I think we can agree that desire plays some part. And being able to solve puzzles plays another part. So maybe it's like a desire with an IQ test because they don't just want like you know it's, you you can you can be a twisted motherfucker, but you can't be a stupid. I'm just trying to think how they'd um, advertise it nowadays. Do you think like Pinhead had released you know those mobile adverts where they show a retard trying to complete it? And they just fucking fail every time on Facebook where you get these fucking... Only 1% of people can solve this challenge. Yeah. And you get, like, fucking people who can't add shit. Do you think Pinhead's up there trying to desperately solve the cube and fails? And goes, oh, maybe you can do no, it. No, I reckon it's it's like a, it's like that. But you know those games that are like, <clears throat> play this and you will you will come. You know what I mean? <laughs> be like yeah. a, it'd be like a, a mixture of those two. Solve this puzzle and you will come. He needs to team up with, like, Samara to start getting some actual advertisement out there in the modern day. <laughs> Just sitting down, passing out the VHS, buy one, get one free fucking deals. A lot of fucking money for that box as well, he hands over. And, but yeah, in terms of the actual first scene of the Cenobites coming in, who aren't in it for long, uh, it should be said. They're in it for, what, like, 15 minutes? Across the whole film, they're not in it for long. Yeah, like 15, 20 minutes, I think, total. Most of that at the end, which is good. They're not really characters in this at all. Actually, they're more um, plot devices to an extent. More like tools to kind of drive something, which is about right. Is there, for one, they shouldn't really be conceivable in a sense on a human level because they're demons and they're meant to be kind of existential. I don't know. I I agree, you know, I kind of disagree because I think think it's like, as with that, that French, the French guy who creates the box, I think that they are they say something about what it means to be human themselves and like they because they're not strictly demons as pinhead says uh, we are neither angels or demons we are yeah it's uh, we're demons to some angels to others yeah. i think so i don't think that they are necessarily demons themselves either anyway, either way the, the extreme side of one thing even if they are still human the, the absolute extremity of it 
uh, they've, they've found kind of one aspect of being human and they've taken and fucking gone with it to a nutty fucking autistic level so I, I think beyond the comprehension of a normal person at least at this point uh, immediately yeah and they certainly give that performance when they're in it they, they feel otherworldly whenever they're walking around or at least in a weird way above you i don't know quite what they, they're not pretentious in a sense but um I, eldritch is the best way to put it. eldritch yeah yeah they're uh yeah that's that's just the only way they, they just give a really good performance of this kind of slow moving uh horror villain for this book. like opening scene as well Oh, you only see them very briefly in this opening scene. They just sort of walk around a little bit, and there's all this weird, there's this weird spinning column of flesh and a whole bunch of chains about. Uh, yeah, it, it sort of gives the impression disgusting. of this like weird, weird uh, like basement of some person who's heavily into bondage. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what Barker did. He, he did research by going into S and M stores. Oh, I, I fucking hope none of them had this shit sitting around. <laughs> well, I, you can definitely see the inspiration. I mean, just by what they wear. You, you don't really see much of them at this point, but you, you can sort of see like the black leather, and you can sort of see. But it's like a dimly lit basement. And the spinning column of flesh and nails is a bit bizarre. You don't necessarily see that in bondage basements, but you know, generally, there's it's, it has that weird sort of. To at this point, if you, if you were someone who didn't know what you were watching, you could probably think that it transported you to some bizarre basement. Yeah, I wonder how many test runs they went for on the costumes on Pinhead, going for S&M stuff. They're just like a ball gagging. <laughs> Tried fucking everything, gave them a fucking dominatrix whip. See what actually worked. Um, yeah, I, the way I always see it for these films, and films like Event Horizon, uh, just those ones that kind of touch on Lovecraftian, hellish things that are beyond comprehension or okay, if you want to go um, fucking uh, Warhammer, Slaneshi yeah. stuff is that th- this is kind of a, the perception that the filmmakers can actually give it it's in reality or at least in you know supernatural reality far worse than we're able to put across um, which is, is why I always prefer uh, the existential stuff uh, Lovecraftian stuff in book form I think that it can kind of put across the idea of okay, you can't even imagine how fucking miserable this is to go through because it goes, you know, beyond the pleasures of Earth uh, with this stuff. It goes beyond the pain and pleasure of Earth, which is why Frank's doing this shit because he can't actually pleasure himself anymore because he's hit that limit. Frank's like now. the extra, yeah, like the, the porn addict, the person who watches so much porn that they can't like come to any, any yeah, come to like a normal woman anymore. They've got to come to some like Japanese girl screaming. Ew! You know, it sort of gets more and more twisted. Like, it's it's effectively that, isn't it? Do you think Frank's gone for a furry stage in his life? <laughs> Far worse than that. It's just trying to eat you know, everything. Yeah, there, there, there is a lot fucking worse out there. Frank Frank's on some lists, well, the, probably. There's a reason he's on the The assuming thing is that presumably anyone who wants to solve this box has yeah, been completely desensitised to like really fucked up sexual... Um, S&M type stuff, you know, the, the most extreme depravity of it. It's like, oddly enough, as we mentioned earlier, the film uh, Sailor, 120 Days of Sodom, the people that... Yeah. Uh, it's based on historical events in that film, but the, the people that would have would have participated in those sorts of events or even writ the, the book by the Frenchman Sailor, which that film's based on, the, those people are the sorts of people to reach out for this box. Yeah, where, where they've hit the absolute limit. Yeah. 
of everything the the real fucked up people it's yeah like one moment you're watching <laughs> like that corn roots, you know they're like in a relationship they're all nice and it's a loving wife and husband next moment you've seen like about 100 japanese men lined up and that, that's why i always um come into argument when people say online why would you ever open this box why would you ever touch it, it it's the like, you wouldn't really do it i wouldn't do it certainly uh, most everyone on the planet wouldn't touch the fucking box I, i'm sure most people had... on the planet would say they wouldn't touch the box but i'm sure there's many people who would despite saying they would. i'm sure some people some people are morons and would go out of their way to do it people like frank i don't think he's an idiot oh God, no. No, he's, uh, not. he's got purpose and if anything this is almost the best thing that can happen no it really isn't it's fucking awful well, no, no, I disagree. I do think that some people, you know, would want to see seek this sort of, sort of thing out and would genuinely enjoy it. Well, we not just like some people. It's in this like very world, this very law that there are those people that want to do it and and fucking love it, uh, which I think is explored more in the second film. Yeah, I think the film, the first film, just does a bad job in putting that across. The Novellia certainly does a better job. Uh, the comics do a better job in showing that it is you know pleasure and pain. It's not just complete yeah. misery. 100% of the time it's not hell to, to an extent it's, hell, um, isn't it? it's this, well, who knows if God even exists in this weird universe but you know, they, they would use our as Lovecraftian as it is if we believe in a God they will use that belief in a God against you or, or for you to, towards the, the combination of pleasure and pain yeah it's, uh, it's an interesting thought to push on but anyway, jumping back into the actual film is uh, as as that all comes to a close, we get a a contrast, uh, which I've, w- I've always kind of thought in my head if it's intentional. Like it was, it was definitely intentional. More if it's too harsh, uh, because Larry is the most boring fuck I alive. Totally, well, I I totally agree, but I think that Larry's boringness serves the most important point of because the film the, the whole message not the message of the film but the the the, the box and the per the lament configuration and the what comes is the lament configuration is that reality is too boring for you so oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. larry being a boring person is a very sort of good thing especially insofar as the wife uh, what's her name uh, Julia, Julia yeah. that's right. Julia and Frank are concerned. Larry's this very boring character that comes between them, and these two are characters that they, they're desensitized to the real, yeah, to to reality as we know it, to the boring realities as we know it. Yeah, actually, no, I, I tell that about Larry isn't the most boring fuck alive. It's his friends. My God, they're like fucking milk toast with milk. The does. guys of the, uh, the, the sofa they're... later on, mattress. Uh, yeah, no, like sitting around and talking at a table. Oh, yeah. We're having a dinner party. The people are like the personification of celery. <laughs> Just the most depressingly empty, water-filled people on the planet. And I know that, that that's the contrast needed. And that, if I was Julia, that would fucking drive me to open that box. Jesus Christ, I don't care what's on the other side of it at that point, if that's what I have to contend with. Um, to some extent as well, Kirsty, she's not got much going on before everything kind of really kicks off, which, again, is necessary to progress. I suppose she's about the same, to be fair, as other uh, horror movie protagonists. It's just the contrast is so evident when you've got Frank and Julia there as well. Yeah. So kind of play off. I don't think there's anything right. Well, you have to have normal to make the weird weird. Because if everyone's weird, it's like... um, 
it's like those sorts of comedy films where everyone's in, where everyone's mental and everyone's all sort of strange. It's like crappy spoof movies where everything's weird and everything's it, fucked up. They sort of lose. Yeah, you need a straight man, kind of thing. Yeah, for, for every like John Candy, you need a um. Oh, for the planes, trains, you need the other guy whose name fucking escapes me. Uh, for every Inspector Clouseau, you need the uh, captain of the police to kind of play off him and show it as weird. In those films, obviously, it's done for comedic effect. You've got the contrast there. In this film, it's, I suppose, just to emphasise um, Frank's plight through this and the necessity to have something like this to kind of drive well, you forward. It's also someone for the audience to, to um, sympathise with, like Kirsty, Kirsty is especially. Yeah, on Kirsty. I never know if I can properly sympathise with her. I think the problem I've always had with Kirsty in the first film, not the second film so much, is she's a very inactive protagonist. Well, she's barely in the film. Yeah, she doesn't drive much forward. Well, she's barely in uh, actually... <laughs> Like, really? Yeah, that's it's, it's fair. It's Frank and Julia's story until it isn't. Until she kind of pushes her head, yeah. And Larry just... Larry's barely there. Larry doesn't fucking... As Frank himself says, Larry doesn't fucking exist. Larry is a blank sheet of paper to shove shit on. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Poor yeah. actor. Yeah, I think he does a good job. The actor himself does a good job at portraying that. Yeah. Oh, great job. Absolutely amazing. He does a good job as um, Frank as well, as you get on towards the end. And Which do you prefer, actually, in terms of the two Frank actors? Or the three, I suppose, to an extent. So obviously you had uh, a different guy play the emaciated... Between Larry's portrayal, the guy who plays him, whose name escapes me, and uh, Frank's, which which do you prefer? Uh, probably Frank. Frank's the one that's like, well, dubbed. The one that's, yeah, kind of like the the fucking Fonz. If he was actually yeah, cool. he sort of has that like cool dude kind of uh, badass guy vibe. Yeah, he really works for this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not sure if I was expecting someone more said a masochistic to open the box, but he definitely does strike me as a person who'd want to do this sort of shit. Well, uh, I can imagine ahead. everyone at like not everyone at some well, I can imagine actually everyone at some point or another has probably been like because you know some people maintain the desensitization for a long time, but some people are going to be seduced by the idea of something of a worldler just out of sheer boredom and. Yeah, I mean, that's the classic. People say if there was a button that would end the world, it'd be pushed in the first five fucking minutes of existing. Yeah, I suppose. And Frank seems like the sort of guy who gets a lot of... Yeah, he, he's quite successful in his life, in in many ways. In the sort of... As the sort of... Alpha, like the archetypical alpha male, he's very successful in that regard. So when you can get, like, everything you could want in terms of, like, women, and, um... I don't know, just... He seems to be. Well, I guess that's the main thing for him, isn't it? Women and sex. And when you seem to be able to to participate in those sorts of things relatively easily, it's de- you desensitise to it. In his case, yeah, he does have what he wants. Absolutely everything, and he's. I think what the most successful person in the films, um, in terms of actually progressing forward in his desires, at least at the start of everything, is he's yeah, he just he's had an accomplishment, had a goal. Not everyone's going to have that same goal of just, you know, debauchery yeah. in general to progress yourself. But when that's all you have, um, and obviously they make a big deal of uh, Kirsty has the love for her dad and Larry has the love for Kirsty, uh, and everyone else kind of has something to propel them forward, ex- you know, uh, in exception to just base carnal lust and wanting to fuck. 
and Garan just receiving pleasure, which is all Frank yeah. has. You know, he doesn't he doesn't love Julia at all. Um, well, she's like a useful tool for most fucking, of the film. Yeah, he's a psychopath. Absolutely, he doesn't have any empathy for anyone in this, and that is all he has. He doesn't have a kind of set of ideals that he wants to live himself by. Yeah, pure hedonist. Uh, yeah, hedonist. That's perfect. And depressingly, these people do exist. Well, absolutely, they do. Which, yeah, it's, for me, it would be a sad fucking life, but yeah, people derive different uh, meanings for life. So when we get to the house, after after Larry's established as the boring man that he is, we're in the house, and the house is, <laughs> is pretty fucked. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real doer-upper. Yeah, that's what he seems to say. Ah, oh, we'll get it done up and it'll be beautiful. I mean, for England, well, considering the country that it's in, it's a bloody amazing house. Like, it must be worth a fortune. Like, yeah, the, the house is huge by by our standards. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, fucking massive. I mean, Americans watching this, I don't know if you've seen, like, British houses... That they're so fucking small compared to yours in terms of actual area, landmass. I don't know if they say what city it's in. No, they never do specify uh, whereabouts in the UK it is, but we know that they've just moved to the UK and now they've got this amazing house. Yeah, I think it was his parents. I think he says something about they were trying to sell it, but Frank never uh, agreed to all this stuff. And I'm presuming that religious iconography is Frank's parents. At some point, in, like, he went for a fucking carry stage where his mum locked him in a That's cupboard a really or some shit. It's just become so sexually out there. Yeah, I just sort of took the religious iconography as sort of what the... Because, f- yeah, this, this hedonism, this debauchery is like a spit in the face of the church, especially back... Because this is uh, the 80s, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, it uh, in that, I mean, today, we don't really see hedonism debauchery as, you know, like... Uh, as anything but itself, but back then that was like an affront to the church. And the best way of explaining this is these these people are like satanic, or these people are against the church, is to have them you know shown with with mucker we like mucker mucking the church. If you know what I mean? Oh uh, yeah, you had um, the classic cases with um, I can't remember now, no, Mary something with uh, Cliff Richard who tried to ban The Exorcist and various yeah. other films. Through the seventies and eighties, uh, she was it's a, a very, it's bitch. a very useful tool. Like back then, uh, for cinema, if you were trying trying to make a horror film, to like purposefully use uh, the the church and sort of like twist the church. I mean, modern things even do this today. Like, you know, I I recently just finished watching uh, Midnight Mass, which I should have watched a while ago, and that that uses the same sort of thing of like if you want to establish something. As evil, even now, even though you, you have to change your methodology of doing that, you can sort of twist or metaphorically spit in the face of the church to get that across. Yeah, in a weird way, somehow the church is still seen as the pinnacle of innocence to an extent. Well, it's what it, or at least the iconography yeah. is, I think, in basis. Um, the Virgin Mary, certainly, is still seen in that kind of light, and the baby Jesus and all that kind of shit, and the, the crucifix, yeah, the, the iconography at least, maybe not the actual establishment, yeah. and then corrupting that is um, the pinnacle. Oh, that makes sense. Like Frank at this point has progressed from getting women whenever he wants to, I don't know, wanking off to curvy driftwood, and like little fucking carvings of people having sex, which is so depressing. I'm so glad I grew up in an age of porn, I internet don't know. porn, and didn't have to like go out looking for fucking... Glass that was vaguely shaped like I doubt tits. he's actually like wanking after it. Like I doubt that's actually what he gets after because I think you know he's once again he's so like, desensitized. He requires more and more and more. These are just sort of feeble uh, attempts at trying to stimulate his brain. Oh, that's that's fair actually. You know, he's progressed so far down the line that he's just built this shit and it's failed and he's chucked it here. 
I suppose that's why he doesn't care about getting girls around, so he doesn't do anything well, for he, Well, he's anymore. got those pictures that uh, Judy is soon to uncover, where he finds, like, uh, well, he does the pictures of him having sex with women. Yeah, I mean, there is all that. In that fucking bizarre-looking Patrick Bateman-level dingy-ass fucking place that I wouldn't be seen within 500 miles of. It's a ridiculously of. creepy place. For someone who... Uh, I don't know, like, he doesn't necessarily fit the stereotype of the Fifty Shades of Grey, like, bandage guy, you know, because like, he's not rich and he's not, like, well-established in that sense, but yet he somehow, his character somehow pulls it off. Yeah. Oh, so I just imagine, like, Christian Grey and Anastasia going I genuinely think shit. that uh, Christian Grey from Fifty Shades of Grey, that is the, the name of the male, isn't it? Yeah, just making sure. Yeah. I genuinely think that, like, that's, like, another direction of the Frank character. I, I think... Um, Without the sequels where he goes all lovey-dovey, I think. His Frank is a psychopath through and through. I think Christian Grey is, at least in the first film. I've, I have watched it for some fucking reason. <laughs> I don't know why. And I've, I've heard about the sequels. I've seen reviews of them and shit. Um, yeah, Frank Frank is uh, an interesting character. He's simple in a way. He's only got one push forward, as we said. But uh, certainly very interesting. Um Talking about interesting, sorry, talking about incredibly fucking boring and tedious on a completely different note, we go to the moving men with their mattresses as everyone starts bringing shit in. Uh, the house is cleaned up probably by some poor fucking sap on minimum wage Go through the maggoty fucking mm. kitchen. Jesus Christ. I feel sorry for that poor fucking guy. Uh, and yeah, we, we get some really nice visualisations, which um surprising actually, coming from Clive Barker on his first film. I'm really impressed. Uh, in some ways simplistic, I suppose, and very much literary based where we get um, nice and simple kind of uh, our connections between the mattress and Julia's constantly thinking about having sex with Frank um, we get uh, constant transitions between uh, pain and pleasure like where um, Larry cuts his hand open you know on the nail and it goes straight to um, Frank ejaculating uh, yeah, yeah that's a very good point I hadn't noticed that but yeah there is that sort of uh, something in the early part of the film, there's something bad ha- is happening in the house. In Julie's mind, she's generally thinking about, oh, how much better you know, uh, Frank is to sleep with. How much better that fucking romantic Twilight-level guy who threatened to kill my husband with a knife was. <laughs> this, I, I don't know what she fucking saw. Actually, I do. I have well, a theory that she was looking for power or something in there and she found it through Frank at the start and then finds it through the Cenobites in the second I film. I kind of, yeah, I, I agree with that, but I also kind of think that uh, they're playing archetypical characters. You know, much in the same way we talked about Christian Grey a second ago. So Larry is the, yeah, yeah. the archetypical, you know, if you, if you if you haven't paid attention to internet culture or uh, like the red pill, praxology and, you know, things like that, or even he, he plays the archetypical, like, beta male. Whereas Frank is like the archetypical alpha male, you know, he's the sort of the strong, rugged, masculine girl man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much it works perfectly. Yeah, metaphor and for that. Right, so I don't think it's a metaphor. I think it like literally is this. Well, it it is just the case, yeah. And <clears throat> Julie, Julie, Ju- yeah, Julie, yeah. She finds herself sort of like wedged between these two men that are brothers, and it's the alpha on the one hand and the beta on the other hand. And what I think is interesting is, well, there's um, a sort of like, uh, I think why this why this story resonates with people so much is because I think it's sort of, in a, in a sense, hardwired into our DNA. And there's a, a book called uh, Promiscuity, uh, An Evolutionary History of Sperm, Sperm Competition by T. 
Tea Burkhead, which I think uh, talks about these sort of things. And I think like Red Pillars and different sort of uh, other communities like evolutionary psychology also talk about this sort of thing, which is like this idea that um, <clears throat> you need, if you're like selecting for a mate, you want to select for the good genetics. You also want to select for the ability to take care of offspring. And what what females across um, across the uh, lots of different species, it's unknown for certain if this is true for human beings, but it certainly is true in the case of like penguins and things. Where if you want a male with with good, because a male can have many different many different children from many different females, but a female can only have so many children of her own, and it's a lot, it's a massive investment to have each of these children. So they're sort of in this position of. What do I want? Do I want good genetics or do I want a male who can take care of the child afterwards? You know what I mean? And I think Judy finds herself in this position where it's like, well, I have the dutiful, nice beta husband who doesn't turn me on at all in the bedroom. He's not sexy in the slightest. You know, that's Larry. And then there's Frank, this remarkably sexy, handsome man who really gets me going. Yeah, it, it, it certainly works in the theatre of Hellraiser, all that stuff. When you've got, uh, especially a one-track mind, as you said, caricatures, to an extent, uh, in terms of Julia, in terms of Frank and Larry, who were kind of have one desire that they could constantly push on. In terms of Frank, obviously, it's just carnal. In terms of Julia, I suppose it is that. I don't know if it's security she gets from Frank. Not from, not from Frank. Per se, oh, no, but... No. Larry's no, absolutely the not from Frank. Frank's uh, there. Yeah. Frank's, Frank is the mystery. Frank is to... the uncertainty. Frank is those like feelings that really get to going. What the box gives yeah. you, I suppose. It's Frank her is box, box yeah. to an extent. And what's like furthermore is what's what's really interesting is that scene where uh, she has the flashback and she's like reminded of of her wedding night and she decides to have sex with Frank. And that, like just before she's going to get married to Larry. What's interesting is, despite doing that, despite having feelings for Frank, she still marries Larry, because that like that like sort of like yeah, the, like those that trade off that I mentioned earlier between the alpha male and the beta male. She she wants both. She can't just have the alpha male. She can't just have the beta male. She decides to get both in two different men. Yeah, you know, she will have sex with with the the, the the sexy passionate alpha male on the side, and then marry. The, the beta guy, which is Larry. And it blows up in her fucking face eventually. Well, it blows up in Larry's face, I suppose. Well, yeah, and, and Frank, like, whilst this is... So it's like the existential problem for being, for being like, a, a woman. I think in, in evolutionary psychology, it, at least, like, that's the way they would paint it. Because the existential issue for a female in evolutionary psychology on like, the pure carnal basis of what it means to be human is to try and find some way of your offspring surviving and passing on its genes, which is, like... I need the sexy, sexiness, the good genetics, and I also need those offspring to survive by having someone to take care of them. And Judy has that, like, optimally, she has the sex with the the alpha and the provisioning of the beta. Meanwhile, Frank, on the other hand, is like the, the male version of that, where Frank has all the access to all the women that he could ever want. Like, so much so that it drives him mad and completely desensitizes it to him. So like the evolutionary idea for what a male would want is free access to female sexuality, is to reproduce and put your eggs in loads of different baskets, which is the total opposite to Larry, because Larry is only access to, yeah, he's, he's a prude by contrast. Yeah, I think, no, you know what, I was going to say prude's harsh, but no, prude's actually exactly on the nose. They do say that a lot. Uh, I think Kirsty says it about the, the guy and all of Larry's yeah. friends. 
and I, I, I'm sure she thinks that about Larry as well because they are the the epitome of that. That's what they're designed exactly. to be at the end of yeah. the day. Uh, just to contrast that massively. Uh, do you mind if we take just five minutes? I want to quickly go for a piss. So yeah, uh, I've got all the mattress stuff moving in. Introduce all the characters as well. That yeah, works just generally very well. We get two leering uh, mattress men. Again, why the fuck would Doug Bradley want to play leering mattress man? When I think of casting, I don't go straight to... I suppose this, again, this is his face. <laughs> which, I, none of this really works when I know that he wasn't recognised by his own fucking colleagues. I, it, yeah, kind of pitches in. And he, he has worked with um, Clive Barker before, so I'm, I'm assuming it was kind of a, yeah, we can push you into all this stuff. I, it, he's just so iconic as um, Pinhead. I couldn't imagine him as anyone else. Obviously, he, he was in um, all the posters and stuff, you know, when they were actually releasing it on all the uh, memorabilia and the like, which, to me, feels... Um, a bit like chicanery, you know? Like having the lead advertisement be of a fucking character that is in barely ten minutes of it. It's what I, it's <laughs> what I do, granted. It's absolutely what I put on the posters. And I can't... Yeah, I can't think of anything better to shove on them, but it feels wrong to some extent. Uh, so, now, with, with all that, we get some uh, blood come down, dripping onto Frank after Larry... Fucking smacks his hand open and gushes it. it it's that like it's a classic eighties style fucking like diabetic like uh, fucking cholesterol blood. It's just pooling out like massive um, bubbles popping. It's it's ridiculous. It goes everywhere and he goes on a lot of fucking show and tell mission to show his wife rather than I don't know getting the mattress <laughs> men to do it. it uh, to be fair, presumably can't be asked or drunk on fucking beer. Uh, and yeah, I wouldn't want to look at it either. It looks fucking painful. I don't blame him for that. That that kind of gets the ball rolling on uh, Frank's reincarnation or revitalization more. Which uh, it's um a weird scene as he like his body sort of forms back together and he slowly rises out the ground. Visually, it's incredible. I, I'd say it, it's absolutely brilliant. On that, uh, I myself am a massive fan of uh, blue color schemes. And the Hellraiser franchise uses it quite a lot. They, they go very blue uh, a lot of the time. It's kind of similar to the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street films that you know always take on that kind of stance to it. Uh, the soundtrack in these parts always makes the scenes in these. It's fucking incredible all the way through this. It's again got a kind of evangelic vibe rather than a real horror element to it, rather than a suspenseful element. Um, and the actual body of Frank uh, obviously goes through some stages. And at this stage, as he's kind of coming together, you can't even quite tell what is coming out of the ground until you see the brainstem connect. It looks kind of animalistic, or actually, no, kind of more arthropody, insectoid, as like these two little spindly things come out. And I'm kind of imagining um, the segmented legs of a spider kind of slamming into the ground or an ant, and eventually, you know, pulling himself out and clasping together into what looks like a fucking. You know the the Voldemort fetus from the later films? Oh, Harry Potter? Yeah, from the, the Harry Potter yeah. film. It looks like that, grown up. It's fucking horrible. Or like, um, oh, Grendel from Beowulf, that 2008 film. It's like that's kind of like fucking beaten cousin. Crippled cousin. And Sparta left to die on the rock. <laughs> I think this is the only stage of Frank after he's come together, and this is where uh, you first probably see him when he's talking. The only stage that looks a little bad. A little Doctor Who-y fucking 
rubbery vibe there. I mean, I suppose rubber fucking perfect for this film. Yeah, I, the rest that you know when he gets red and everything, I quite like it when he looks like um, a science fucking toy. But at this point, there's it, just a touch. You can see the budget coming through just a little bit. I still appreciate it. I still respect it. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. <laughs> can you tell me the story before of how that was made? It was like mounting a body or something. I can't remember. If that was how it was made. Didn't they, like, get something and then they mounted it and then they played that, like, in reverse to show it be coming out? Um, I wouldn't be surprised. It's all stop motion, obviously. And if they did do it that way, that's really impressive. I can't remember if that was me pushing it forward. I'll have a look. I'll have a look. And I'll uh, say... Yeah, I thought you were telling me that before. I'll I'll record it and if I find out if it is for that, that, that's... Yeah, if that is the way they did it. For a million... Actually, that that'd be about right. Is it really impressive for a million, uh, for this lower budget? Really fucking impressive. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the other CGI, not CGI effects, look kind of Highlandery. To be honest, by the end of it, but this part, mm-hmm. fucking phenomenal. Uh, the the smoke machine as well is really nice. They have judicious use of the smoke throughout the scenes. Yeah, a lot of smoke. Uh, light refracts really well off smoke. It makes it look a lot better. You'd be surprised how much smoke was probably in that fucking room. It, mm. I, I guarantee people could barely see what they were fucking looking at. It was covered in it. You'd, you'd, yeah, you'd be fucking amazed. In terms of uh, little fucking fetus, Frank, would you help Frank if you were in Julia's position? No, she's a twisted motherfucker, so... Mm, that's fair. He's lucky he didn't have fucking you or me as partners, because I don't think I could have got him that many people back. He's lucky no. Julia was a good-looking fucking Fuck woman. If, if she, what, what would your strategy be if you were in Julia's position and you wanted to revive someone? Prostitutes? No, I don't think that would work either. I suppose, uh. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't think there's anything I could do. I think I'd be totally powerless. I think, I, I suppose, I, I was about to say I'd have to pretend to be gay, which, I mean. Mm-hmm. Is it easier to uh, get men on apps like Grindr, like percentage wise, from what I've seen online? I've got no evidence to support that. Oh, gotcha. It's just what I've heard of people. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I'd have to push on that side of things. It'd be fucking awkward if he if he did get uh, a woman's skin to finish it all off with and had to just awkwardly dress in this fucking amalgamation. Yeah, he's lucky he has Julia. And I suppose Julia's lucky she had the doctor to just fucking bankroll her, I presume. Commit credit card fraud or bring in insane people. So otherwise, yeah, if, if someone fucking came out of the mattress in my house and said, oh, fucking save me. You're about the second film now with Chenard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Julia, I'm just saying she's fucking lucky she had Chenard and not, like, me coming out <laughs> fucking what do you want me to do I'm on barely fucking above minimum wage I ain't attracting anyone to bring them fucking back here <laughs> the best I can do you know you know that um, what we do in the shadows the vampire thing where they, they go around looking for virgins and they find like D&D groups to fucking bring back in I think that's the best I could fucking do genuinely like I can bring you fucking D&D nerds just set that shit up just host the game at your house and the nerds come round yeah just this poor fucking guy <laughs> D&D nerd skin. Oh, welcome to True Hell, mate. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I think the other, the only other part of the film I'm not a massive fan of that we get introduced to now as well is uh, the homeless guy. That's... Oh, the weird homeless guy that stalks Kirsty for some reason. Yeah, the guardian of the puzzle uh, from what I've read through the wiki, which obviously is a part of the books and a part of the comics, but in this doesn't really work. He's pointless. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't really get it either, because what is, what is he looking for? Is he looking 
And then why is he only stalking um, Julie? No, why is he stalking Kirsten? That's what I don't get. But I guess he's just there for like cinematic effect because like in in terms of just as an audience member watching the film, it is kind of he is kind of scary, and kind of intimidating, kind of weird. From like a perspective of what's actually going on, the story doesn't really make any sense. But he does make the film a bit more unsettling. I suppose otherwise Kirsty's scenes would be quite tedious. Yeah. It would just be getting harassed in a pet store mm. and kissing a man while walking out. That, yeah, that would literally be it for her. She'd be even more pointless. Um, or her waking up in the middle of the night and phoning her dad. What a fucking bitch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's just having all the weird dreams of shit. If my child fucking phoned me at three in the morning and said, at 19 and said, Dad, I'm having weird dreams. I said, fucking good for you. Fuck off. Go to sleep. <laughs> no, that's... Yeah. If I did that to my dad, he'd fucking hit me. Rightly so. I deserve <laughs> it. In fact, I was different when it's a little girl who still calls him fucking daddy. What a creepy... Oh, yeah, she does. I mean, like... The plot was, like, where it was, um... It was, like, other teenage kids, you know, other kids that she was friends with. They'd probably, like, bully her, but... I hope so. She deserves to be bullied for that. Unless you're fucking Paris Hilton. Maybe then it's weird. You're not, you're not meant to call your fucking dad daddy. That's it, It's got a kind of sexual endearment vibe to it as personified by Frank later on in this fucking terrifying come to daddy Jesus. I'm presuming that's why they used it to have the nice little flip on its head kind of thing to go from boring innocence to fucking what Frank does to it, corrupting it completely and turning it on its head because they do like those kind of opposing forces between the two. It, it's weird. Really fucking weird as shit. We, yeah, kind of get a a real contrast throughout all this. And we've gone into it a lot, so I'm not going to jump too much for it. Just go for a couple specifics. Uh, The party, fuck me, that's boring. No wonder Julia pissed off. Like, there's an anecdote Larry gives about doctors, which, okay, fair enough. That's mildly interesting. He passed out in Doc's office, he stood above you, okay. Mildly funny. Uh, if you're around friends and it's it's part of your day, okay, I can see that. And then some woman comments with just doctors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, I also think that it is, it is just partly like, as much as it is, could be about contrast if you're sort of analysing the film, it could also just be a generic time when people sit around and have food. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, it absolutely is that. It do, I could imagine people having this kind of conversation. The same kind of people who watch Grey's fucking anatomy is what this <laughs> shit is. Like, you, remember that, you remember that fucking South Park episode where everyone goes boring? Fucking, I can't remember who it is now. There's a bit where um, some girl, I, tie the, I think it's Kenny, they get Kenny to watch Grey's anatomy and have like um, Jonas Brothers chastity rings right. and shit. And he, yeah, he goes really fucking tedious because he wants to sleep with her. It's the only reason he goes ah, through all this classic, shit. Yeah, yeah that, we've all been there. With, it's the one with Mickey Mouse and Jonas Brothers. Fucking ages ago, I think it's like season four, season five. So fucking, oh no, it couldn't have been. He's too far back, but yeah, decades ago, a decade ago. Uh, that that's the vibe I get from this fucking party. It's just miserable. And it, my parties are fucking miserable where we just sit around and watch fucking Birdemic or The Room. <laughs> And then play a board game. But at least we get fucking smashed during them. At least we're completely gone by the end of it. And fucking thrown vacuum cleaners on the roof and shit. Which, granted, isn't much. But it's better than this. Dear God, anything is better than this. Oh, they're grown adults, aren't they? They don't throw vacuum cleaners at the roof. It's odd if I ever turn out like this. You can just fucking hang me. I've got to give out to the uh, guy, though. He uh, puts out Kirsty's... Uh, well, no, he doesn't. 
He kisses her. <laughs> Kirsty's like new boyfriend. I love this what? whole. Uh, when, no, no. Oh, um, the guy. When they leave, yeah. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Steve or something. Yeah, she starts bringing him back. One of the first, one of the random men, yeah. Yeah, she kiss, kisses him, takes him back to her room because she's not staying with uh, Larry and Julia. And then they sleep ah. sleep in different beds. <laughs> How fucking pathetic is that? Like, you, you go back to a girl's house and she says, oh, can you sleep in the opposing bed, please? Poor yeah, fucking Yeah, Kirsty now you're on about. Yeah, 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 Kirsty. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. When she uh, takes the guy back to her house and she, she calls him frigid and then they sleep in opposite beds. That's so depressing. Have you ever heard of um, couples who sleep in opposite beds all the way through their life? Well, the thing is, like, they are, I think it was sort of part of the time of being in the 80s and that, and also, like, sort of her attitude. I don't know, I feel like if you're going back to a room anyway, you might as well fucking... I don't, just go back to your own house if you're not going to do shit. I'd rather be <laughs> in my own bed. Fucking hell. But again, I think for me, a lot of this is just the inbuilt contrast that you get between the two of them is the problem. Like, in any other film, this would be normal. Uh, with Kirsty and all this stuff, with Larry and all this stuff, but because it's Hellraiser and because you have Frank and Julia there, I immediately jumped to it's fucking so boring. <laughs> Not boring to watch, but they are. Well, it, it's intentionally boring, you mean? The characters are made. I, I think that's boring. the problem, yeah. Because the contrast is there, that it just seems more monotonous than it actually is. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that because I, th- I, th- I think that, like, you just. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know why I don't know, but I just know I don't. I just don't know. I just know that I don't necessarily agree with that. This is horror, of course, as well, where they put out on a regular fucking basis. Like, if you don't have one sex scene in it, you in the eighties, you're doing something fucking wrong. The same genre as Slumber Party Massacre and fucking Friday the Thirteenth. It's uh, not a frigid genre. My question is: Is this uh, when? At what point does Julie make her first kill with a hammer? Uh, that. Was actually kind of after this, kind of around here, yeah. It was either yeah. directly before, or directly after. Because I think that scene was quite quick. Because there's actually a bit more to that scene than meets the eye. Because at first, because she's actually very hesitant to do anything with him, mm. but and she's even hesitant to kill him until the very moment when he says, "You're not gonna fucking change your mind, are you?" <laughs> like when he starts getting a bit like pushy and a bit rapey, it's almost sort of, sort of like the justification to her and to, of like the justification to the audience as to why he should die. You know what I mean? What, uh, Frank? Not Frank. Oh, no, yeah, no. The, 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 ran- the first the rando. of the guys that she brings to her uh, to feed Frank. Yeah, the random guy. Yeah, they meet at like a pub. It's like, ah, I'm drinking alone. G- I- I'd be sure nice if I wasn't drinking alone. Let's drink together. And then they go home. And like, he- she's very hesitant to actually commit to killing him. And right up until the moment when he says that. Yeah, I, d- I don't know if that's kind of the push the character needed, or at least the justification that the audience needs for the character to be pushed along. I think it's a bit of both, but yeah. Or if she'd have, yeah, I'm not sure if she'd have gone through with it anyway. If it was like the nicest guy imaginable. It's, it's interesting. Well, Julie's not like, you know, like fucked in the head like Frankie's to that degree. She is a bit, but you know, like it's like kind of slow for her. I think you have to be if you if you're willing to kill someone. There has to be something. Even like, I, even if you brought a murderer, a fucking psychopath home, unless you're bringing some like John Venables motherfucker back with you, and it's good for society generally to axe this twat. I think any like level of. I'm willing to kill this person because he's a bit of a douchebag. Well, it's it's just how quick you're willing to do it. Because, you know, she wasn't going to mm. do it immediately. She has to be sort of... And later on, she's just killing them 
like constantly. You know, he kills loads. Well, there's the um, boxing scene with Larry specifically, where Larry's watching boxing, saying, oh, "I don't usually like this stuff." You willing to go through that? She uh, desensitizes very yeah, quickly. Exactly. Very quickly, actually. So it's one kill. Maybe desensitization's kind of a theme of Hellraiser. Like, yeah, it's like. Um... And people used to say that, ah, if you're watching porn, yeah, now you're going to be a rapist, that sort of thing. It's like how race is like the film of, yeah, you, you start watching porn, then you start like raping, then you, then you get yourself a lament configuration. <laughs> it's like the new advert for the um, fucking, you wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a handbag, you wouldn't go around <laughs> and shoot a police officer, you wouldn't shit in their helmet and give it back to his wife, you wouldn't use the lament configuration. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So you wouldn't download a pirated movie. It's all fucking around in itself. It makes more sense now. It's really good as well. Really brutal, the um, actual hammer bashing. Feel it. Fucking... Yeah, he, he begs for mercy. He really begs. That's one of the scenes the MPA cut really short. I'm not surprised. Oh, really? So there was going to be a lot more to it than that? Not, I mean, much more. She was just going to, like... It, it's more explicit where she bashed it in and you see a lot more come out and you see his face kind of tearing up a bit from what I've read. Right. It's just... The same thing, but the same vague length, but just more extreme. So yeah, there's um, about three deaths in this, and they all just get quicker and quicker. Actually, there's there's less effort put into each and every one of them, and Julia seems a bit more. Three deaths um, isn't three of the random dudes. There's more. Yeah, yeah, three of the random deaths, dudes. Yeah. Sorry, less reluctant each time. Yeah, she's the quite. Yeah, she's sort of. Yeah, which you kill once, you, it's easier to kill again, I suppose. Yeah, popping your fucking cherry. And that kind of stance of things, so fair enough. Uh, there was a couple, I suppose, miscellaneous scenes here and there. Frank has a tantrum for some reason and staples fucking rats to the wall. Yeah, he nails the rats in the wall. It's a bit weird. I was going to say why, but I mean, he's clearly fucked in the head. Yeah. And wouldn't you be, to be fair, if you'd been tortured? Probably frustrated because, you know, like. He's just sort of trapped in the basement, bored as shit. What's he got better to do besides nail some rats into the wall? Yeah, and we're talking about a guy who gets his kicks by opening up portals to hell with demons in them. Oh, it's, this guy's probably really uh, bored. <laughs> more than you fucking... He can't just wank himself... He literally can't wank himself off. That must be the most painful fucking thing ever. Imagine doing that with no skin. <laughs> Jesus. Did did your like, hair stand on end for this shit as well? I can only imagine how fucking miserable it is to walk with no souls on you. Ah, oh. oh, it's got to be so painful. Fucking horrible. Well, I mean, for most of it, his nerves weren't even there. His nerves are only there till t- towards the end, so... Yeah, I, I quite like the um, where he does say there's pain coming back and it feels good. To some extent, he doesn't flinch. Not It doesn't change him at all. I can only imagine it's miserable, but I suppose compared to the Cenobites, bliss, bliss, compared to what they can do to you. Uh, yeah, we kind of kicking off at about the 50 minute mark roughly where Kirsty gets shoved into the limelight I suppose it's when Larry's killed off really oh when her dad when yeah that well there is that weird scene right before that as well where like yeah like he's threatening yeah he's not threatening La, threatening Larry to Julia because they were about to have sex and then he's like yeah he got the knife he was hiding in the closet oh god yeah that's a bit weird I forgot about that completely where he cock blocks his little brother yeah. With a fucking rat being carved in half. That's so fucking She's just screaming disgusting. and he's like, why? Why don't you love me? That sort of thing. But yeah, she doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't know what's actually happening. Poor fucking... I like to think that's when Larry got his dick out and she just starts screaming. He fucking timed it perfectly. Poor Larry. Mm. Poor Larry, yeah. Fucking... 
They had such a miserable time during this. Apparently, um, I was looking up bits about his character in the sixth film. He's in hell as well. He's with fucking Julia and Frank. He has just had a miserable time in his life. He's actually, ah, because in the second film, that's not really, it seems like he might not be there. Uh, oh, to be fair, this the sick film is the sick fucking Hellraiser film, so I'm not going to take it to its the word. Canon, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, far too harsh. I, I got the feeling, I like heaven, I hope, or something, that this guy's found a woman who truly fucking loves him somewhere. He, he deserves it. He deserves something. He's a nice guy. Pushed himself nice along. Guy, He's tried nice hard guy for this shit. Yeah. Was I was saying earlier about the whole like you know this whole. Like the whole film sort of being sort of potentially touching on us because it uses that like evolutionary psychology sort of style of the whole, you know, the the two different kinds of men, the two extremes of men. Yeah, it's all about desire. It's all about um, quantifying what someone wants in life and really drilling that down into something, uh, which well, obviously it doesn't uh, quite work because people are more nuanced when you actually extrapolate into reality to everyone. But to in terms extent, of... Uh, I this... don't know. I don't know necessarily. Like, with this regard, people like to think they're nuanced, but like, and yeah, like in, in films, it's important that you write them as nuanced, but then when it comes to specifically like desire and relationships... I don't think people are as nuanced as filmmakers would like that would like you know all people that watch films would like to have filmmakers portray them. As a human, I like to think that people are nuanced. But they, but exactly, but that's, I think that's exactly sort of the point that that I'm that I'm like protesting. Well, that it's it's that desire for people to be um, to, more than just yeah, primal yeah. instinct. Exactly. Which is a depressing fucking thought. <laughs> That's really sad. The idea that bi- biology dictates everything is a philosophy to push on. Yeah, it is like yeah, this sort of determinism, and and, and, and yeah, like we are because sort of at our roots are we just this this biology which which reproduces and and this like this this uh, sort of dark side of our biology. I say dark side. It just is what it is. Like this urge for reproduction taken to its extreme is does that not just make us all Franks and Julias? Yeah, that's mortifying if you push on that. If you, at least I think, if you take that as the base, human as the um, utmost desire. Which, yeah, I, <laughs> it, it's hard to uh, think on really because it's just so sad. It's nihilistic, I think, to an extent to think that, that there is nothing, there's no value in life, so just go for the carnal body pleasure. Kind of what the Cenobites are, though, aren't they? They're like the, the physical like manifestation of this pleasure. I think so much so as they consider pain to be pleasure as well. And and I think that, like... Yeah. yeah I mean, absolutely. That's... They're, they're the, the utmost. They're, again, they are human. I suppose you, you corrected me earlier on saying that, and they are. They're shown to be human and kind of illusions of, just the extremities of, which is, I think, creepier. Than them just being well, like, demons know, and an angels extent, and the like. Yeah. To, I don't know if we necessarily think it's creepy. Like, I, I think something that is completely unexplained is creepy because that's how they are in the first film, aren't they? You don't, you don't know where like Pinhead's identity until the second film. Yeah, I, I like to have a bit of a reflection of humanity, and then there's two ways of doing it, I suppose. There's a supernatural way, and there's the um, the, the existential, you know, uh, surrealist way, the eldritch way of doing it, and then having some humanity in there. Uh, it gets you like Michael Mars as well, obviously, who 
it kind of falls beyond, I suppose, to an extent, human. Yeah, I, I, I like this way of doing it. I like giving them some level of personality and not being completely um, kind of unapproachable. As you can see why Frank does what he does on that, you can see why he's being kind of coaxed into this. There's uh, an element of yourself that kind of, that, that same part of you that wants to jump on roller coasters that, you know, when you see a cliff edge, that little voice in your head that goes jump, 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 jump. It's sort of, what's, cause, you know, like, uh, what's his face? Um, Larry isn't dead yet, and whilst Frankie's, like, feeding you, getting random women, like, uh, not random, but random men feeding on them, that's when Kirsty mm. arrives yeah. home, and that's when Kirsty, that's when Kirsty gets the box. Yeah, she has her hands on the box, which Frank is a fucking idiot. He leaves it out in the open, like in the centre. If I fucking, if I knew that box was going to send me back to hell, it would be like behind so many fucking mouse traps and fucking steel walls. I'd build a tiny little fucking well, box, like a what black I box, think is to shove that fucking strange. thing in. Because yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is like once again like a directional thing, or this is a plot hole, or it's something intentionally there by Guy Barker, which is, so at the start of the film, we saw that the Cenobites put the box back together, you know, like this, and, and then put it, left yeah, yeah. it in that room. But the, my question is, like, if they just put it back together, left it in that room, why did they leave it in that room? Why, you know, like, how are they going to get it to the, ne- to the next person and pass it on? Because that person, the keeper of the box, why didn't the keeper of the box come by the house and pick it up, you know what I mean? Why leave it there? I suppose they have... Um... No concept of time, really. It's eternal. So they, they don't really mind who eventually picks it up, I suppose. Or Pinhead's just a lazy prick. I get the impression prick. that, like, Pinhead, like, the Cenobites are a different... You know, they're, they're not... They don't necessarily communicate with the things that pass the box on. You know, that like, the, the, the Asian lady from the start. And, and also, he's also yeah. in the second film as well. And it's the very same Asian lady that seemed to be the one that gave it to Pinhead originally as well, weirdly, from what we see in the second film. And... So I, I don't know. Maybe that it's just a plot hole that they they just you know like never moved it, or maybe like the Cenobites, maybe some sort of organization saw ahead of time that it was gonna you know like cause the plot of Hellraiser to happen, and was like yeah, let's just let it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I, I always go on Occam's Razor, just assume they're lazy. <laughs> we couldn't be fucked to push it around. It's yeah, uh, yeah. Either way, it's sitting in the room. Uh, Kirsty chucks it out the window because again, Frank is a more. I would be holding that. It would be in me if I was Frank. It'd be like literally next to my fucking heart. I would shove it in my own body. If that thing can, you know, mark the end of my existence again, eternity of torture, that Jesus Christ, would I not leave that on the floor out in the open? Or let Julie. You know that scene where he shows Julie for the first time and she goes to hey. touch it? Like, motherfucker, are you looking at the same person? He's a flayed skin fucking demon. It, he's got no fucking skin. He's in massive amounts of pain. Don't touch the thing that turned him she that way. Do you, she didn't. She had no idea at that point. You probably would have... Th- I would assume. She to get the, see the, like, the flashback of the Cenobites. Like, she does actually see the Cenobites as well through it, bizarrely. Yeah, I, I would not go near that thing. I would not go near anything this guy gave me ever again. I'd leave him the hell alone, to be fair, personally. If I loved Frank and I really wanted to save him, I still wouldn't touch anything he fucking showed me. So I'd be thinking, yeah, I don't want to be a flayed fucking monster either. So you, you keep that to yourself, mate. Either That's way. fine. The hell away from me. Uh, yeah, uh, Kirsty Nick, yeah, nicks it, escapes. 
Uh, that's another scene that was caught. Obviously, the MPA. She originally punches him and like takes his fucking guts out, like kind of Kamakamaha style in um, Indiana Jones oh, right. too. For beating heart, <laughs> like they do in the second film actually, where Julia takes his heart out uh, and fucking crushes it. But in this film, yeah, they had to cut a lot of it. We yeah, uh, this this is obviously after Frank gets another poor guy in. Kirsty follows in after presuming Julia's sleeping around on it uh, and her dad, and then she ends up at a hospital. I think, who, yeah, the one of the fucking worst hospitals I've seen in my life. 80s hospitals look so fucking it miserable. It reminded me of the, uh, and drab. the place in Candyman. Like, where the where the woman's taken in Candyman as well. That woman is... Yeah, yeah, it is in, in Candyman, the first one. Uh, hell, it's been a while since Wait, I've seen that. That sort of same, like, extremely dingy-looking... Is it a police station? Is it a hospital? Were there are police interviewing me? I'm just in this, like, empty little room. That sort of vibe. Yeah, that looks like it'd have more place in the fucking 1880s rather than 1980s. It's, it's so miserable. <laughs> uh, with a tiny little crappy 80s TV and the, the, just a bed. and a, I don't know what it is about hospitals. They always kind of creep me out a little bit. And uh, in film, especially, obviously, when you're trying to creep someone out, you can really go to town on it. It's just yeah, it's horrible. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so the, the scene that comes after that, arguably the best scene in the whole film... Well, obviously you get the chase first, where she opens the lament configuration, solves it, and uh, the, yeah, engineer, the engineer, isn't it? Um, the fucking... I said, I know, I had an argument. Not giant, slightly larger than average mm, the demon. flesh monster creature. Go based on scale, a little flesh monster creature. Yeah, That's really well done. You can see, if you look carefully, you can see the cart behind him, behind it. Like, you can literally see the wheels that it's on if you look carefully. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll I'll let them that. It's probably my least favorite design of the lot, though, if I'm honest. Yeah, they're all pretty cool. It's really really good. Um, but I, just I think the Cenobites take it to another level because of the level of humanity that you can still see mm. in them uh, that I really like, especially especially with the female one, yeah. Pinhead. She has a very good line. Female Cenobite does. Oh, excellent! She she's absolutely brilliant in this. Her voice work as well uh, has to be said. Uh, her larynx is like being. I don't know, exposed. It's the best way of putting it, like, torn open. It's that's horrible. You know, originally, um, the female Cenobite and Pinhead weren't going to be the lead speakers. It was going to go to uh, the other two, Chatterer and... Uh, oh, I can't remember. The Butterball, yeah. He's in the books and everything. They're, they're the lead Cenobites. Uh, but because makeup like made them mm. inaudible, it ended up going to the other two, which, thank fuck. I mean, I'm sure they'd have done a fine job, but the the... Woman who I'm really sorry, I don't know her name. I will look it up. Does an ex- excellent job, and Doug Bradley knocks yeah, it out the fucking These voices pretty intimidating. His whole look, his like eyes and everything. He's just well, he, he just like soulless. He creates the franchise, and for me, I know a lot of people put him as like a B movie horror icon, like B list. If you're going down horror, which I suppose he is technically, when you go over, like he's no Michael Myers, he's no Jason Voorhees in terms of actual recognition. For me, he's one of, if not possibly, my favourite of the icons. Um, yeah, he, he's definitely up, like Wishmaster as well. I really love. You know, in the original um, script, what they wanted to do, Corman's uh, production company, is give him joking lines, like make him a bit more humorous, which would have been such a fucking mistake. Yeah, that would have been a terrible idea. What they did was actually really good. They, make, they wanted to make him like a, what's his name? Uh, Freddy. Freddy, Kr- Freddy Krueger star, yeah. Which, yeah, uh, 
it'd been too human. The, th- the thing that like what's good about Pinhead is he just sort of seems to be like the, the way he describes, the way he talks is in sort of riddles. He's very like sort of not. It's very neutral. Very not like he's like. It's it's he talks as though he's not familiar with the earth. No, and um, I suppose he is, and he's uh, for lack of a better term, transcended beyond it at this point. No, I don't, I don't arguably no. He seems to be having fun. He enjoys his job. Ten out of fucking ten on job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Good for him. He's it's hard in these uh, trying times to find a job you love. If you fucking find it, go for it. You can definitely tell he's still like pretty evil. Like for example, when he says the line, "No tears, please." It's a waste of good <laughs> suffering. You know, like that's clearly that he does. That he is. Yeah, it sort of gives away his intentions, but he. You know, he's not like completely, completely alien. You know what I mean? It's where he doesn't recognise what tears are. Well, I mean, for these things, I think uh, morality is a very human thing, and I think from his perspective. Showing people the extremes, which is what they deem as, you know, worthy thing of life. They think it's good. Um, it's morally good in their yeah. eyes, certainly, which is always the best way to do a villain. You want to justify them. You don't want them thinking they're evil. You want them thinking fundamentally that what they're doing is a good thing, which in this case is fucking hard to do. But somehow Clive Barker pulls it off flawlessly. These people absolutely think they're doing the right thing and think they're... Uh, they think they're saving sense, people a, in a sense, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Liberating, liberating is a perfect fucking way of putting it, which is so fucking creepy. Um, but yeah, this scene generally, I've, I'm not going to... Visually is amazing. You've got the um, negative uh, contrast on the bricks. You've got uh, blood coming into the IV tube. Um, the TV goes all staticky. Uh, just kind of general stuff. The music, again, pitch perfect. It's got kind of bells, a religious kind of tone to it. Uh, smoke machine goes mental again. Blue, which I love, the kind of morose, depressing contrast to reality, which Nightmare on Elm Street did as well a lot to differentiate between uh, Freddy's dream world and the real one. Just, yeah, I, the the dialogue is just so good. Uh, the, the, the intonations, the way they speak, the acting, it's just incredible. It's no wonder they didn't recognise him. Does such a good job here. What I also think is really good about this particular scene, the female centerbites, is when, because uh, Kirsten's like, offering them the deal, she's offering them, I know where Frank is, I know Frank escaped you, I can lead you to him, you can take him back instead of having me. And, and the female centerbites line, which is, what if we'd prefer you, is so, like, good. Oh, gosh, yeah. Everything that comes out of her mouth on that stance, it's just perfect, that raspy voice. I'm, I'm going to stop wanking them off. <laughs> Is no one? I'm sure they'd enjoy it, but uh, probably not. It's probably a bit mundane for them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, it, it's just amazing. There's nothing else I can really say about it. Every scene with the Cenobites in the first two films, God help me for the next few. But for these films, it's something to look forward to every time. I'm, I'm so glad they were given this little screen time. Yeah, it really makes them. The... It really makes. I mean, even in the second film, they're given quite a small amount of screen time. Yeah, it's. I think a little bit more, but it's only about. 20 minutes compared to about 15 in this one yeah for two films that are about an hour and a half 90 minutes uh bang on i think one's hour hour 33 one's an hour 35 but yeah beyond fucking flashbacks which we'll get into so yeah this this kind of um culminates in the the third act the the final set piece the big kind of uh hoorah yeah yeah more or less with uh, our main villain 
really, and then it's like that big bad. It's like you've got Frank, who's he's pretty evil. He's a he's a pretty big villain, and you've got like the villains much more above him, much more powerful than he is. And it's like using those villains to beat your Frank. Yeah, you've got to work with the Cenobites. You've got to work with this evil to get rid of the other evil. The greater good. The greater good. Except that they're definitely not a greater good. No, no, they're absolutely <laughs> as far away from a great fucking... Well, in their perspective, they, they, they enjoy what they do. Uh, yeah, I, I am still as well glad that they only get this amount of screen time because then we wouldn't have so much on Frank, who you'd, you'd lose that. Uh, as you went through the alpha male, beta male kind of, um, and lost carnal desire. Well, it's, it's all the things that make the... Because the Cenobites themselves, they sort of exist within themselves. But what's more important than that is even what, you know, what why people would want to see the Cenobites, you know what I mean? Like, what the Cenobites represent, rather than just themselves. As, as I said, they aren't really characters in this point. They are just uh, plot devices, yeah. which I, I say with all the love in the world, absolutely nothing wrong with that. And They're, they're very well-done plot devices, uh, and for what they're there for, yeah, it's absolutely perfect to be shoved in. Especially if this Eldritch stuff, where it goes beyond human conception, you should always keep it as minimal as possible. And allow everyone else to kind of fill in the blanks with a lot of this stuff, which is why I don't like the homeless guy because that that was always too on the nose for a lot of this and just a bit. I understand it, but I I still understand it from the perspective of like you need something to make it, you know, like to sort of get the audience for Kirstein scenes to make it a bit creepier. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I suppose it's um, similar to the David Lynch whole homeless scene in um, Mulholland Drive. I always thought people blew that portion to be honest i never really got the uh, whole deal about that but uh, anyway yeah final little bit sitting in the house around we have a kind of like scooby-doo-esque one door opens one door closes chase between frank and uh, kirsty after he comes on to her <laughs> as her dad yeah come to daddy jesus <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure for him is like the fucking minimum that's that's nothing compared to the shit he's done yeah, it's it's horrible. And he uh, kills Julia, Frank, accidentally. After he gets um, oh, his, fa- his face ripped off. That looks so good as well, with the, the whole three strings. But he's obviously put Larry on. He's wearing him like a fucking skin suit at this when point. When she was like in the room with him, and you could see all the shit around his face, how did she not <laughs> yeah. realise who it was, or what was going on here? Kind of in my head, I said, well, if you want to believe it, you'll believe it. It was like, that was like, she could just, you know, see... Because it's not like you put on the mask very well. Like, there's still a little, like, yeah. You know, blood all around his face she didn't question that and then the personality change as well I mean granted when he started saying come to daddy it became really obvious but I thought the fact that she wanted to leave the house and she was like everyone you need to leave with me we're not safe here and then they were like ah it's alright you can stay stay with us like what were they I think that the moment he said oh I killed Frack myself he's in the fucking top that should have rung alarm bells oh yeah that should have gone yeah, I'm going to leave rather than going up. I'm going to tell Julia Shaw I'll have a look at it and then I'm going to fucking leg it. Because obviously, I, I think she was piecing it together at that point and it was just, I don't know, it was too much well, for her. What was good as well is what I liked realized. is when she walks into the room with her, her, well, with her dad's dead body, who she was told was Frank's dead body, and Pinhead like appeared and said, we want the man who did this. Because Pinhead knows that that's her real dad and knows that like Frank's the one who killed it. But Kirsty still hasn't really figured it out. And she's like, no, that's my dad who killed that guy. You know what I mean? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more um, denial at this point. It's, it's her trying to think he's still alive desperately, clinging, I hope. Just to fucking have any respect for the character. Mm. Or, or she's just gone through so much that she's kind of snapped a little bit. 
Which, fair enough, anyone would. It's funny, because like, she just immediately leaves, and yeah, the Cenobites aren't really do anything, doing anything at this point. Because yeah, she, keep, she keeps having these sort of chases around with, uh, with Frank, but the Cenobites don't really do a whole lot. I think they have a line when it kind of culminates at the end of the chase, um, because she, she sort of tries to sneak out of her room, and I think she's about to go downstairs, but she waits around for Frank and stares lustfully at a fucking wall for about five minutes, waiting for him to graciously come out of her room and find her. Well done. Well, and during that moment, because in that moment, no, like before it happens, Pinhead appears again and says, "We have such sights to show you." Like that, yeah, he's like gleefully like talk, telling her about how, like, you know, he's gonna tell her, show her the most amazing oh, gosh, things yeah. ever. Yeah. And th- and then after that, like Frank, Frank finds her again. Then she runs back into the room with where her dead father is. Yeah, uh, it's when um, Frank says, "I'm Frank." Oh yeah, yeah, that that's when they come. come yeah, yeah, he like announces it. Yeah, is it so they need to hear it from him, something like that? As if, again, the dead fucking, like, men in black one skin suit wasn't a giveaway <laughs> enough. Just, oh, the new fucking fashion, Texas Chainsaw, really in season this fucking year. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we get, again, there's not much I can really say beyond an exceptional performance all around, especially from um, Andrew uh, Andrew Robinson playing Larry. Absolutely brilliant. Like blows out of the water. His line actually was improvised. Oh what? Uh, uh, Jesus, ju- Jesus. Yeah, originally it was gonna be "fuck you," and he twisted it around. He got Clive Barker to uh, change it up, which uh, absolutely amazing uh, ad lib on that. Certainly better than just a "fuck you." Probably more in character for Frank to say "fuck you." No, actually, no. I think more in character to say "Jesus wept." On this, because Frank's never portrayed as an idiot. No, Frank's Frank's pretty smart. I think. He's, he's never really portrayed as being, I don't know, that. Um, I mean, he's base, but not that instinctual. I don't know how to yeah, put it. I get what you mean. Reactionary. He's not that reactionary and that simple in what he actually says. He's, he is quite intelligent for all this and uh, manipulative. <clears throat> what, what I like to so just before that, just before he says that, just before like he gets fucked up on the chain. Yeah, yeah. So he, he does try and, when he, when he realises that, like, yeah, Kirsty's got the Cenobites. He does try and go for her, and the Cenobites defend her. Like, they, they stop him from hitting her. Yeah, well, he, she's theirs to have advent- eventually, even if not now. I know we're going to disagree on this, but so I think they're just incompetent, but... Um... I, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I think I do genuinely... When, the, when yeah, she made the deal with the Cenobites, so it was like, maybe, maybe... And, and you know, she does... Yeah. I, th- I think... That they do kind of, they do another deal, and that they don't actually want him to hit her, and that they also they do want to like you know scare her fuck about a little bit, you know have a little bit of, have a little bit of a mess about. But I, I don't think it's going to be that easy to get rid of them as to just solve the puzzle box again. I think they purposefully allow you to solve the puzzle box as it suits them. I know that for me actually does um, help to push the the idea that the box isn't solved by puzzle solving skills. Isn't that fucking easy to insta-solve? It is just desire on that. If they just let her do it to some extent. I think so. They just push on that. So, you know, it, it makes more sense, actually, from that standing, because they captured Frank so easily, and if they really wanted it, they could just hit her with it. Like, if they yeah. really wanted us, they're just sort of, like, fucking about it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And she just slowly so solves the box and she goes back, but, you know, I don't... Like, I don't think that their hearts were really in it. Because that, that is so powerful. If they really wanted her, they could just chain her hand. She can't use the box anymore. Yeah, and they kind of all walk to her and one gets fucking, like, Free Stooges style, has wood fall on his fucking yeah, head. Yeah, it's pretty goofy. 
I quite like that. Poor, uh... uh yeah, that's, um, but, uh, but a ball in it. That's, that, that's gotta be a bit depressing. I bet you he bigged that story up when he fucking got back. He changed that <laughs> around. He's even fucking still saying, oh, how did you get shoved back? Did you get the box on you too? The fucking supernatural thing that's our only weakness? Nah, a fucking bit of wood fell on my fucking head. I got knocked out by hazardous landing. I mean, maybe, like, they were going after her, but I think if they were, like, I think that's kind of, like, I, I would prefer that they sort of let her go. And in the second film, a little bit, I think it's sort of hinted that that they sort of let her go. That you know, they they want they want her to come to them willingly. Like if someone opens the box, they want someone to be interested in what they have to do, rather than well, that's the whole hands uh, design, not hands yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah, they don't they don't care for Tiffany. They don't really they don't really care for Kirsty actually. Thinking about it, while she's in that house. I'm sure they knew she was there. Is there supernatural? And at no point do they go because they know obviously that the doctors ran off, so they've got some awareness. What is interesting to me is that they take Julie as well. They do take Judy. Judy's sort of. I think there's something in her mind that wants it. You know what I mean? And they they know that. Yeah, I don't, Frank is as I said. It's kind of her box to an extent, and this is just the logical extreme of that. That she she goes for something far more bestial. Um, to satisfy that kind of pleasure in life. She's chosen Frank now that Larry's dead, so she's kind of given up on that. Well, you send the Beta Alpha thing, she's given up on the Beta side of things at this point. She's she's fully jumped in on the whole ride and die kind of motif. Fucking, you know, the whole um, some may some may live, but the crazy never die. Jump on that uh, absolute extreme. Which, you know, I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> I've, you know, I'm, I'm not going to shy away from fucking some of the more baser things but fuck me eternal torture and pleasure with what is more or less slanesh i'm all right i'll uh i'll take uh cold from papa nurgle any day of the week <laughs> oh at least it's not corn i like i like having multiple eyes so i'll take zinch uh so the ending obviously we, we finish on <sighs> ah the ending sequence so that's another one of those where they ran out of budget and yes yeah, so the ending once that they ran out of budget and they were like well we want what do we what do we do and then the ending monster's really fucking ugly i'm trying to think how i'd have done it if i wanted to keep the homeless guy and i wanted to do this i just think i wouldn't have bothered with the um Demon. monster yeah just have the homeless yeah. guy walk up and take it in fact what i do i think is have the homeless guy while it's still a flame and smoking around him have him pick it up look at it and then walk backwards like they can't follow him or anything like that because it's still on fire so you still get the kind of supernatural feel to it, but you don't get the shitty fucking monster. Yeah. And the thing is, the monster's kind of out of place, because the monster does look just like an outright demon, whereas everything else is, like, not really... Like, you know, not really outright looking like a demon from hell. It sort of looks a bit different, you know what I mean? It has its own style to it, whereas that just looks like an ordinary demon. Yeah, it's it's like a bone dragon. It's just fucking shit. Yeah, it kind of makes you question, like, maybe Pinhead was lying, maybe it is just hell. It's not, like, this weird cool place in between you know what i mean it, it looks like something straight out of fucking evil dead free where they had all the like dummies and stuff it's you should have just finished it like 30 seconds before that it would have been fine absolutely great uh, it's it's a dampener on i think an almost perfect film it should it needs that just one cut and i honestly think this this is perfect in from what it wanted to do and what it wanted to push in the philosophy it actually had to go for this is absolute perfection one of my favorite one of my favorite films ever 
I'm I'm interested as to why more horror films haven't really sort of spun this narrative of this like willfully wanting to be. I mean, I think more horror films have done it, but it's just not sort of. It's like sort of like a background piece, not the, this whole sort of thing of this like. Kind of the epicenter of it. Yeah, to be the epicenter is. Is like the you know the carnality, the, the sort of primal desires of what it's as you know as we were talking earlier. Like, what if to be human, it is nothing more than these this urge to to reproduce and pass off your genes and survive, and like the extremity of that, how far that can go. Like, I'm, I'm sure other things have done it. I know other things like I suppose around devils and the like have tried it. Yeah, I think it's sort of you, you don't tend to get so you get films like um, the Keanu Reeves film Devil's Advocate where it kind of pushes the idea that humanity is just based, but you get it from the devil. So he, it's always the it's, villain. Yeah, it's that kind not of, like humanity has it instinctively and it's, you know what I mean? And I don't think at any point, and I, for me, I might be interpreting well, it wrong actually, to some extent. I've realised what does do it. Oh, Zombie what? films, like The Crazies and um, that one with the, 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 the Thai, Thai one. Sadness. They oh, do sadness it because like, the, and, and to an extent that like maybe like 28 days later-ish, but like mostly like the sadness is like that big example because what, what exactly what the uh, the disease does is it like take, inhibits it, like, higher brain function. Yeah, that. higher yeah. brain function it just makes you that pure like carnal sort of bestial human where you know like you just want to sort of fuck and kill whatever wants you to stop you from fucking, you know what I mean? And then like eat food, you know, like the very, very basics to the very basic brain functionality. I think the only difference I'd say it had is that Hellraiser, I don't know quite how to word this, at no point does it say that's an inherently bad thing. Yeah. I don't think, for for Frank at least, which is, again, hard to pull off. I I know some people probably say, oh, obviously Frank dies and he goes through this hellish situation. In the book, certainly, it's never put across as an inherently bad thing for these people to push towards for these specific people who want this sort of shit, who want to uh, progress into Carl Desire, where zombie films, they do say that this is, you know, a lack of humanity. They're losing yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, but this, this is just, it just is, they are human. That's And that this is just them tapping into yeah. the part of their humanity. It's... That's all, but it, yeah, it's a void of humanity in zombie films. In this film, it is human to do this shit, uh, which I don't think any other film has ever done. I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting somewhere, but I, I, no film has done it this well. I can say that with absolute certainty. It's, it's, it's really hard to approach that and fucking depressing when you sit down and really think of it. But yeah, it, outside of all the philosophy of it though, um, and before we jump onto the second one, it's just a really good film. Like if, if I took out all the philosophy and everything, it's still just really fucking good. For the special effects and all that sort of things, um, I can just appreciate on that measure as well. Uh, it, it needs to be said, I think the music's really good, uh, the visuals are really good for a first-time director, especially the acting's really good. Just yeah, everything's just tip-top. Uh, which obviously it's a film; it needs to still be entertaining. Beyond all that, and I'd argue that the second film retains that. There's a few writing issues. Is the only crux of the second film. Uh, it goes more surrealist, certainly. And visually, I think it's more interesting yeah, at times. Definitely. I mean, it has the higher budget as well to go along with it, so the second film has. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I didn't really feel... I suppose you got Hell and the whole labyrinth. Oh. I don't think I felt five million worth of budget, or the first one was just so expertly done. 
I think that's what it is. I, I definitely feel feel like the second film is like bigger and bolder in every way. I mean, the labyrinth—that's that's like that's going to be like all oh, the budget itself. Like that whole place is pretty interesting. And obviously, you still yeah. have the, the makeup and things that are left over from before. The, the, that, the budget has to go towards that. You have. I don't know, the labyrinth itself is just such a cool place. Have you got a favourite version of hell in cinema? A favourite version of hell in cinema? Yeah, or in literature, or in anything generally, games. I suppose so. You ever ever played The the Darkness? Or heard of the comic The Darkness, or anything like that, the game? Uh, That's the one with the the guy with the Venom-style thing, isn't it? Yeah, so you're like possessed by this creature called The Darkness, and The Darkness is this... It is the embodiment, it is the the existence of dark, like the absence of light everywhere. And in the hell in that, it's kind of like this... Like, it's perpetual World War One scenario, where... But it's, like, almost, like, steampunky as well. So everyone just lives in, like, perpetual World War One, and it's just, like, constant suffering and constantly having to fight this, like, never-ending battle between themselves and between sort of, like, demonic, twisted versions of themselves in World War One. Okay, well, that's Korn's world. <laughs> just culminating into one state. That's... No, that, that's... Yeah, that's vicious. But yeah, it's, that was, that's probably my favourite depiction of Hal. It's really, like weird and depressing it has this sort of a gothic theme to it and like weird like monsters as well that shouldn't really yeah you know, like, shouldn't really be there but are there and everyone's just like yeah they, they everyone's day is just they wake up they do the battle of the sun they get brutally murdered on the battlefield and then it's like what are we doing tomorrow ah tomorrow game brutally murdered <laughs> will be a little bit of the battle of the sun but this time you know like we'll just fucking start hacking off your toes or something during the middle of it with the weird demon creatures that also exist i love that they've got like a little fucking um ledger a, a timesheet to say okay this is what we do on monday we're gonna hack your toes off in the battle of the sun tomorrow i think we're gonna just i don't know chop me nipples off <laughs> yeah it's, it's the day after secure. that we're gonna an agenda just ready all the demons come together going oh fuck we're running out of things to cut off <laughs> It's a really fucking weird, like, depiction of Hal in that. I don't, I don't know if in that there's, like, oh, because I know your dad was, like, a World War One veteran in that game, so I don't know if it was just specifically because it's his Hal that he lives in, and, like, other people in a different house. I prefer personal Hells, certainly, um, when films go down that. I'm not a massive fan of the traditional, kind of um, Dante's Inferno-style Hell, you know, the, the big fucking horned demon, yeah, fire and brimstone elements, um... It's been done well occasionally, like Futurama's version of Robot Hell. I really like uh, in terms of a comedic aspect. Um, South Park's as well, where he's got a gay love affair with Saddam Hussein. That's that's for for what it wants to do. Um, in terms of, I suppose going down that road as well. Uh, you've got Constantine's Hell uh, with um, oh fucking Keanu Reeves. If you've seen that, uh, which is it's kind of actually weirdly like uh, Book of Blood one of Clive Barker's, just an endless walk of uh, the dead, morbid. And you've got uh, Hercules' Hell's really good as well in that Disney film. Always love the design visually. But I think my favourite Hell, and the closest to um, this film, Hellraiser 2, is ironically actually the death they have in that, the personification of death in uh, the film, is the closest to Pinhead visually, is the uh, version of Hell from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I don't know if you've seen it. I have, but I don't remember the version of Hal in it. I, I do. Those films are very funny, but I don't remember there being a version of Hal in there. Uh, you might have. You might have just seen um, Excellent Adventure. Is in the sequel they go to hell, is they die, they're fucking killed off, and uh, 
they end up in like their own personal hells where you just you go through rooms and you 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 put through various psychological scenarios. I mean, in in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, it, it's stuff like he's being kissed by his grandma who turns into a fucking beetle and does all that kind of shit. It's you know, it's it's that kind of stance. It's um kind of Beetlejuice esque. Whatever hell is like graphics. the worst sorts of things specifically for you. Yeah, that kind of thing. It's... Well, the thing is with, with like Hellraiser, though, is that it's not necessarily how because it's not all bad, as well. Like sometimes it can be complete torture, but sometimes it can probably be. I get the impression, like at least I would like to interpret it. Sometimes it can also be like the greatest feeling ever, like you know, good shit as well. Well, if we go by the canon, by the books, and by the comics, absolutely, that's what it is. It's it's the extremities, both the greatest and the worst of experiences on a physical In level. The films, yeah, they do tend to focus on the more just pains and suffering side. I think that's one of the downsides, one of the shortfalls that they fail to kind of put across that there is this. They do it a little bit, but it's it's more just frank monologuing about it, and they. Oh, or sorry. even just yeah, like but, the Cenobites talking about how brilliant it should, would be, but you, you could just interpret that as they think it's really. I don't know it's kind of. It's, but yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Hellraiser two, Hellbound. Well, sorry, Hellbound, Hellraiser two. Not a bad title. I've heard a lot fucking worse from uh, like the sequel shit. Final Destination was. T- you know, there was one that was meant to be the finalist destination. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't know why to go for the whole 3D thing as well. Um, Final Destination 3D, like Jaws, Jaws 3D. Final Destination Fucking 3D. Hell. Yeah, it's... yeah. I, I don't mind that it's a little edge lord. Hellbound's fine actually because this is Hellraiser and it's you know on the extreme anyway. So um, cast and crew, different director this time. Uh, Clive Barker's producing instead. So we've got Tony Randall, who has done Ticks, uh, which is alright actually. Children of the Night, uh, another fucking Amityville film. Amityville, it's about time. Do you know how many of those there are? So, you know, I told you, there's like 28 of them. A lot of Amityville. If anyone ever asks, I might actually just watch through all of them and get someone. I'm going to do a, a fucking revolving door for that one. I'm not going to make someone else sit through all of those fucking films. I'm not fucking pinhead. I don't need to torture anyone. Uh, and Fist of the North Star. <laughs> so, writing-wise, Clyde Barker's story by credit usually, to be honest, just means that, oh, these are the characters and we have to give them a credit. Uh, and then you've got Peter Aitkins, who, an alumni of the podcast, was on the Wishmaster films. He wrote them all. Well, he wrote the first one. I won't fucking blame him for the third one. Which, uh, you got to that, right? With the Archangel Gabriel fight. That's where you stopped watching it. And uh, The Naked Monster, which sounds about as good as Wishmaster mm. fucking free, if we're honest. Cast-wise, uh, go through the new people first. Imogen uh, Borman plays Tiffany. Uh, she must, I think she's about 19 when I was looking at the um, stuff. She's about 20, 21, 19. She's 14, I think, roughly portrayed as 14, 13. She's like portrayed as like a, a really young... She's like portrayed as a kid. Yeah, oh, no, that's just me looking at her. Uh, she was in uh, Dream Child film and Casualty, the show... But to be fair, every fucking UK star has been on Casualty at one time or another. It's either the Bill or Casualty. I don't know if America has an equivalent, but fucking everyone has. Um, so looking at her Wikipedia page, it's, let's say, colourful. And she had some substance abuse issues, if uh, anyone was curious as to why she probably hasn't been in anything else. It, it was an interesting read. Read of your own volition. I won't go into it here. Yeah, that's Tiffany. Yeah, she, she was... Um, 
yeah, the, the character. She was pretty good in this, the actress. She did a really good job of playing uh, semi-mentally disturbed, which can be done really badly. It's ridiculously over the top. But yeah, it's for fucking Hellraiser, yeah. fairly subdued. Uh, and we've also got Kenneth uh, Cranham playing Dr. Chenard, who took the role because his grandson wanted to see him in a Hellraiser. Loved the first film, yeah. I think he was underage as well, the grandson. He must have been. Fucking 14, 12-ish. Uh, so he was in uh, Shine on Harvey Moon, uh, Under Suspicion, Layer Cake, the David um, Craig film from like 2004, before James Bond came out properly. Same kind of thing. And uh, Flying Blind. He's been in a lot. Yeah, doing fairly well for himself, fairly established. And then, uh, once again, coming back, Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty, uh, Claire Higgins as Julia, and Doug Bradley as the lead Cenobite. Uh, Frank comes back as well, uh, whose name escapes me. The only real reoccurring cast, well, the cast members that don't come back, you've got Andrew Richards, who refused to come back, which uh, really messed up the script. I'll get into that in a second. Who is Andrew Richards? Uh, Larry. Ah, okay. And uh, the the boyfriend, Steve, who no one gives a toss about anyway. Uh, Christopher Young comes back to the soundtrack again, and once again, it's pitch perfect. Different, actually. It's a lot more visceral this time around. Takes a much more um, bass approach, which is kind of effective because they're in hell. After all, Uh, budget box office-wise, higher budget, six million. Yeah, as I said... I can see it in the labyrinth, to be fair. I think just the first one did such a good job that um, you forget, really, it only cost a million. Uh, made 13.5 million, which is about the same thing as the first one, wasn't it? No, the first one made like six times its own budget. Yeah, that's painful. Diminishing returns. It Critically, it kind of bombed when it was released. It's very surreal. It's always hard to put these things off to generalist audiences. And the first one already was... Um, pushing it, I think, with normal, like, fucking family cinema goers. It, it's not the kind of film, I said, you walk into a DVD store and go, yeah, that's the one I'm going to watch tonight, off the fucking rack. You really have to be in a mood for it. Uh, so, trivia-wise, yeah, uh, the film was banned in Australia, because fucking course it was. Australia banned everything. Everything's <laughs> banned there, yeah. Fucking GTA was banned there for ages. All the torture scene was removed, or something along those lines. They're fucking crazy for it. Um, and yeah, uh, Andrew Robinson refused to be in the sequel, uh, which caused massive rewrites, which kind of fills a lot of the gaps in of Kirsty uh, shouting his name, just running through hell to try to save him, which to me seems like a really stupid thing to fucking do, especially in like retrospect of not being there. She's just running through hell, hoping he's fucking in there, shouting his name into an endless lab room. Well done. Nice fucking plan there. You're genuinely better off getting a Ouija board at that fucking point. Why she thinks he's going to hell as well? What the fuck he's done in his spare time to deserve that shit? Well, she probably thinks the Cenobites dragged him there after after all she dragged they dragged Julia. That's a fair point, yeah. They did drag a uh, little Julia down. But yeah, the one big uh, foible for me, the the problem with the film, and I think you were saying as well, we were messaging back and forth the uh, backstory stuff. There's an awful. There's just, there's a lot of flashbacks, just sort of reminding you what happened in the other films. It's six minutes until we get to new footage in this film. Really, that long? Another thing I should say is well, the first half of the film is very slow compared to the second half. Oh yeah, it's a fucking crawl to get through uh, a lot of this. I still enjoyed it, a good chunk of it. There's some scenes in it that are really like viscerally horrid. Um, the 
the slicing scene, the insect scene uh, springs to mind, but it didn't have the consistency of, you know, seeing Pinhead or seeing Frank kind of slowly piece himself together with all the deaths, the hammer hit. None of that really happens. It's all glossed over uh, for the most part until the second act where you see all the dead prostitutes and it starts really kicking into gear. Uh, film of two halves, certainly. Uh, so, uh, oh, actually, we have with Dill Bradley, obviously. That, that is the actual first scene. Let's probably get into it. Oh, of course. The yeah. first scene is learning scene, about uh, Elliot Spencer, Elliot Rogers. No, what the fuck is his name? <laughs> Elliot uh, Rogers. <laughs> not, not a fucking Cenobite. Different person would would not go down this crux. I can. I wouldn't mind seeing mm. Elliot Aha, Rogers. Go yes, he's Elliot Spencer. Yeah. And it's about Pinhead's uh, backstory himself and what he was, which you learn more about in the later films. But you can see because there's a yeah, so you learn about you you hear, you hear like a radio. And you see him in like sort of like World War Two officers' clothing or like Africa Corps Africa clo- uh, officer clothing, and then he's in this dark. Well, it's always going to be some dark, horrible place to solve the lament configuration, isn't it? And he's in another one of those solving the lament. He's dressed like fucking Nigel Thornberry. Yeah, <laughs> more or less like a fucking English explorer. Actually, you know what? That's harsh. He's dressed like they are in Zulu. So I'm saying like 1800s, late 1800s. Um, I'm pretty sure it is actually like the second world, or no, the first world war when it is, but that's just because I, I know what. Oh, God, yeah, it is, of films. course. From all the. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you see his uniform later, don't you? In in full picture, anyway, at least in the, the film canon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so originally it was meant to be a lot longer. Like a lot of the stuff, what I've been told in the third film, uh, comes back around and is kind of fuddled. Uh, from this film, right. So originally that scene was meant to be something like five, ten minutes long, and to go into a lot of his backstory. Um, I suppose to give the first half of the film a bit more of a, a, a pad it a little, and to give it a bit more of the uh, horror elements rather than this slow build up. But because of budget constraints and the like, it was unfortunately cut to just that scene. There's, there's not enough um, proper Doug Bradley in these seeing his human form. I know I'm going to regret that when we get to the third fucking film, eventually. I don't say enough's <laughs> fucking enough, but for the time being. So yeah, after another like five fucking minutes of flashbacks to the first film, which is always unnecessary, always pointless, no one no one needs to see it. There's another fucking run-through as well when she starts explaining the um, Cenobite attack to the Doctor. Oh yeah, she does. She actually tries to like explain some about the demons and things she describes them, and obviously they don't believe her. Yeah, and it goes through like the first. Well, I mean, does the doctor believe her and just pretends not to? Chenard definitely does. Yeah. Yeah, he he's obviously got an idea. I always wondered when oh, he. Oh, you know, he's yeah. a sick motherfucker. Yeah, uh, it's a different kind of desire. It's a desire for knowledge, different kind of side to Frank, but just as I think, base. Just as perverse. Just as way, yeah. yeah, perverse and fundamental uh, to the human condition, certainly. It's nice to have that, actually. It's a different kind of villain. Is that they could have very easily just done the same film the twice. Same Sorry? Yeah, I was agreeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've very easily just done Frank 2.0 with Julia. They could have quite easily done that, um, but they, they go on a very different note, which is nice. The only problem I have with him is the fucking... I, I don't understand, like, doctorially, hospital-wise, what his job is. I'm not sure if he's just some rich, crazy person who's opened... It's called the Chenard Institute. So he clearly like runs it, he owns it. But he's the neurologist, the brain surgeon. He's the psychiatrist, the psychologist he's who fucking everyone. examines 
primary patient. The only thing he doesn't fucking do, which is a shame really, because he advances the field fucking phenomenally, is dermatology. Like the fucking skin stuff he does in this pitch perfect he brings julia's fucking skin all the way back he doesn't fucking do that in the real world which he fucking should get into really fucking amazing at it but yeah uh otherwise the, the the brain surgery when he just goes in with like one it looks like a bone saw on steroids it's terrifying this machine and he just like taps a woman's skull and then fucks off at the like the right start of the film where they're doing surgery and everything i hadn't noticed that i literally watched the film the other day it's like in the scene where he's kind of going over how um, neurology is about going through the labyrinth of the mind and working out the unknowns, which uh, very much is. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it, really, how he's saying that? Because he literally does go to the labyrinth. And that is just... It's on the nose a little, I suppose, yeah. but it kind of works for these films, to be honest. I want a bit of openness. And it, it describes his character in about like 30 seconds a minute. You've got everything from him that you need to know to push on after that. So it's brilliantly done. And then, yeah, he just saws a woman's head and fucks off immediately. Like, one second, <laughs> zoom. Oh, I need to go now. You all deal with it. Presumably while this woman's fucking bleeding out, surgeon style. Just <laughs> crying out and they desperately stitch her together. Why did we get the fucking psychologist to deal with the fucking surgery? <laughs> I mean, yeah, then um, we just get the creepiest detective in the world that watches Kirsty sleep. <laughs> How long's he been there? Do you think like fucking hours? I not too them. long. Like the you know, like the nurses. But ah, she just had some anaesthesia. She'll be up in like you know, she'll be up in a few minutes. Oh, okay, I might as well wait then. I'd fucking hope that he's not just been there <laughs> the whole time she's been sleeping, or staring at her boyfriend and staring at fucking her through it. Uh, this hospital again, it's it's terrible. It's useless, but it like aesthetically, it's really nice. Very creepy. It's kind of. Um, clock, not Clockwork Orange. Uh, the one with uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, kind of style to it, or um, the Terry Gilliam film. Well, I mean, you see more of the hospital as we go. In the hospital's got this like elevator and like the maintenance level, maintenance floor. It's like underground. It just has like all these people trapped. I don't know. The hospital's really fucked up. This place is whatever the hell it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking the assumption that isn't NHS approved the bottom floor to that <laughs> it's a little uh, i don't know again like more 1880s than 1980s what the fuck like tiny little um i mean what they were padded rooms yeah there's like padded rooms on the maintenance level like underground and it's just full of people like absolutely losing their shit which fair enough to them they're in a padded room underground yeah it's not it's fucking awful the standards down there. No wonder these guys are still mental. I don't know if it's just that Shannard doesn't give a shit. Well, Shannard is pretty evil, so I could see that being true. He seems to me like um, a house, a Doctor House kind of character who just cares to figure out what's wrong with them and then doesn't give a shit if they're still fucked or not. Like, fucking, this, this is the problem with him. Good, right, next patient. And we'll just stick him in a fucking holding cell down below. While we're on that, actually, might as well cover this now. Um, Tiffany's mom, did you understand what he did to her? It seemed like he, like, I, I don't really get that. So Tiffany was like, Tiffany's mom came over. It was like, ah, my daughter can't stop solving puzzles. Can you help her out? And then he fucking kidnapped the mom and killed her in front of her daughter. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then because of that, she can't speak anymore. I don't know if it's like she he carved her up and said, put her back to fucking ever now. <laughs> That's your fucking puzzle <laughs> to go through. I don't know. And there's something about clowns and a circus that I, I don't know. 
Oh, yeah, because later on. Fucking doing it. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck. I I think that's just them getting fucking high and going off on a surrealist bender. (laughs) It's it's completely out there at that point. Everything else is more grounded. Tiffany is just a fucking mess. (laughs) I can see why she went on a mad bender in real life, too, and that was like her role. I suppose a reality reflects art for once. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we, we get a. A summary as well of what happened in the last film. We get the mattress, we get the corpse, which makes all the backstory stuff unnecessary. I think with a little bit of extra effort, you could have pieced it together without them expositing to you. Um, So obviously we get the body of Frank, the mattress come in. Oh, not body of Frank, actually. It's going to be the body of um, Larry, Anna, the dad, that the police find sitting around. uh, (laughs) They just shoot. That's, yeah, that's fairly standard fucking police work there. Uh, and Shannon somehow eventually comes into um, ownership of the bloody I mattress. I to convince him of that, but he does somehow. Which, yeah, and he brings it. Shannon's a weird um, kind of a duality of competency. It's borderline like narrative dissonance where he he's fucking useless when the script needs <laughs> him to be and then perfectly capable, perfectly lucid. Otherwise, he leaves the door open constantly for anyone to eavesdrop in on half his conversations. Yeah, everyone everyone knows what exactly, exactly what's going on. I like to think that the whole hospital knows, and it's just his assistant that's fucking stupid enough to go to his house on his own. The rest of the hospital's just going, no, oh, problem. <laughs> yeah, he's a fucking nutter, yeah, leave him alone. I've overheard him say some pretty weird He's fucking shit. sawing patients' heads open. Let's just not fuck with him. He's powerful enough, he's rich enough <laughs> to get police evidence in and to open this fucking place. Just leave him the fuck alone. <laughs> Click your paycheck and run. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know we, we're kind of ringing over things quite quickly, but the first 20 minutes of this dealing with um, Kirsty, it's very well acted. With the first half of the film, I don't think he's particularly interesting at all. It's just the same loop of them being in this, in, in the hospital, and it's like, uh, yep, yeah, we can't get anything out of Kirsty. Kirsty seems like she's a bit mental. This hospital's a dingy, fucking weird place, and Chenard is uh, a nutter. It is that same fucking reoccursive, this happens, this happens, this happens, in that pattern, exactly. And it's it's well done, it's well executed. I don't see anything wrong with it. In a sense, in that only that it might be a touch too long. In fact, no, it's definitely too long. There's a lot of shit that could have been cut out from here. Why didn't they? Uh, they could have cut this out and added more to the Doug Bradley stuff. I'd have happily had that more of the Elliot um, Spencer shit. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's what really went wrong in that sense. Because like, this is the biggest problem, in my opinion, with the second film. With the second film, that the first half is very slow, and there's all these like flashbacks, and there's just lots of like exposition. Yeah. It's it. <sighs> A lot of stuff that was just unnecessary and should have been cut on the floor. Um, and the, the stuff with Julia is, yeah, again, really reminiscent of what happened with Frank. It's just a sort of repetition, which is fine. Like, repetition can be, yeah, it's like the it's like poetry, it rhymes, to quote George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 well, it's what you need to do in a sequel, to an extent. And this is the way you do it. You keep the tone of the original, you keep a lot of the same ideas... And you uh, progress on it, you work on it, which is what the second half does a lot better, granted. You know, you have to add in a sequel. And that's what the second half's there for. And the first half, I suppose, is to kind of ground the fundamentals again. I love how fucking, um, in the first film, obviously, Julie is horrified by Frank and she won't touch him. In this film, Chenard's going to touch that fucking booty. Well, Chenard's just another sort of freak like Frank, I suppose, where he's like, oh, yes, what do we have here then? 
Yeah. I mean, he, he dresses her up in bandages like the fucking Invisible Man and then touches her while she's like yeah. the fucking most visible veiny woman. It's fucking disgusting. I wonder, who would tap that? Who would? I'm sure there's someone, actually. Don't. Yeah, don't I let don't me know. I don't need to see that. No one fucking sent me a link after any of this shit. I don't need to see a rule 34 for Hellraiser. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, a couple of the highlights, though, um, before I do track on into that, a couple of scenes I really liked. Uh, the guy with, I said, the insect body, just, it, it's really cool the way he cuts his skin open. I'm surprised they got away with it, to be honest. Oh, it's pretty, that was really Yeah, crazy. I can barely watch. So it really went sharply in. I think it's a self-infliction. That's actually the um, the actor who plays uh, Frank when he's emaciated in like his uh, corpse form. Oh, is it? Yeah, they, the guy's they... really good at being fucking brutally maimed, like acting like he's being brutally maimed. Fucking terrifying me looking at this thing. In terms of actually insane people as well. Um, on that note, it's often done you know really badly in films where you get the uh, extremity of it. You go um, too absurd too too far into the side and you get something that borderline becomes not comedic but so absurdist it becomes insulting i'm not sure if they do that in this occasionally if they do um it's almost like flanderization well, I feel like it's sort of like the f- almost the first one to do it in a sense so it's like i don't know not like the f- i don't know it's i get what you mean but i don't think it's quite going that far with anything because nothing is ever that sort of it's not like it does any sort of like t- tries to twist or be like haha but this person was actually this person all along do you know what I mean and sort of take the piss of it I think the only one that I think went a little too far or a little too stereotype was the um, guy with the crosses in his room where it's like two seconds three seconds where he opens Uh, one of the doors I think that's the only one that I thought yeah that's going a bit too far I don't know because it's 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 the same sort of thing in the first film where it's that like we're trying to establish we're a horror film, so we're going to spit in the face of religion because we're a horror film or we're edgy. I don't, that, that just takes me out of the realism kind but of it, aspect. It didn't really, yeah, I agree, I agree. He, there's no crazy person that... I mean, maybe there is, but... I'm sure there's, there's one somewhere, but not in every fucking hospital. In every film, there's a crazy guy with crosses on the walls. You remember fucking that uh, video game Outlast that came out in, like, 2015? How many fucking rooms had crosses... Just that was the whole thing with a weird organisation in Outlast. Yeah, a bunch of religious nuts that take over the place. That's fair, but it's every fucking film. Every asylum has the fucking cross nut out. None of these people fucking study the Quran. Instead, <laughs> no one in fucking horror is no one a Jew. There's no like none of those like Islamic uh, the moons. Yeah, fucking like, just Islamic symbol. Just go for just variety it up a bit. Have the fucking have him draw demonic Buddhas. Instead, just all over the walls instead. Um, Kirsty herself is uh, kept in the hospital for some time during all this. She has conversations with the assistant, uh, who I think is hitting on her. <laughs> I think he's trying to sleep with her occasionally. It, it's sort of pushing that direction. Maybe my uh, my fucking creep, Dar, is off. I'm, I'm not sure. <sighs> I, I don't yeah. know. It's like, yeah. Maybe he's just been really nice to her, and I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit Maybe there's just a bit mean. of like tension... But it's nothing... Because it's not like the film really goes anywhere with that. Oh, he gets um, skinned. Exactly. Yeah. He, he becomes back fat. Or <laughs> which, that's a bit of a miserable point to be, isn't it? He could at least be like, fucking hand, do something. Rather than just 
culminating to that, Augustus fucking gloop starts pulled down and squished. Yeah, I, I, all this obviously culminating in uh, the assistant finds out about Shenard because Shenard left the fucking door open. The assistant breaks in. I say with inverted fucking commas. He like grabs a lockpick and moves it up in the door. What a fucking shit security system. <laughs> Not that I know I had a lockpick, but I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Even in video games, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> Even like fucking Skyrim, you have to at least fucking twist around. And it, if lockpicking is less complicated than the Oblivion system, the fucking Elder Scrolls lock can fuck off. Had to go through that unrealistically. Uh, we uh, yeah go through all of this where it's kind of culminating up. Julia is a red flesh monster, very similar to Frank's. Uh, she doesn't really go through the stages in this film, which thank God to be honest, because that would have padded out even more. You know, yeah, just straight to red. And we don't go through all the killings because we've seen that before. Um, Chenard presumably just hires a load of prostitutes. I don't know where he gets all these people from. We've got no idea. It's not explicitly said. Wow, else is he going to get fucking a load of really hot-looking thirty-something? I don't know. There's lots of different ways. It's not always prostitutes. I suppose he's a doctor. He owns his own institute. You could you could regale on that. You could profitise that. I can't fucking see how a guy that old is going to get that many fucking. Nah. <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, again, I'd be fucked. I'd just be sitting there going, mate, yeah, you, you've got... I can get your last call at the nightclub every night. You're not going to fucking want it, but that's that's the best I could fucking do. So enjoy. Chenard, Chenard, Chenard gets pussy. Apparently, you'll pay for it. I mean, either way, there's a whole bunch of dead <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, fucking reams of them. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Julia, at this point, yeah, she cuts her... Obviously, she gets all her skin... She's ready up. His Chenard's been studying all this shit. He's, he's aware of how it all works. And he's very happy to really uh, crux into this. Unlike Julia, he's got no real remorse for any of the people he kills. He immediately kind of hops on it. I'll kill someone for you. In fact, I think he, he kills someone, yeah. He kills the uh, insect guy before Julia even comes about. Well, he's the reason... The insect guy is how he summons yeah, so Julia. He's all fucking for it, Chenard, which I suppose kind of works into him being the next Cenobite eventually. Uh, he just yeah, immediately falls into that role quite happily, very quickly. It's like the uh, it's like the the labyrinth was built for him. He's one of those like like Frank was there for Frank enjoyed it. He sorted it out, but Chenard really belongs there, and he's he's fucking more than happy to, so to go there. And he really wants to go there. He's collecting the. He's like got a shitload of element configurations just all around the place. Who do you empathise with more than uh, sympathise with more uh, Chenard? With a kind of search for knowledge, or Frank with the search for carnal pleasure. Um, who do I sympathise with more? Fucking okay, me. not Are not sympathise, empathise, or at least understand the perspective of more. Uh, probably Chenard, I suppose. Like at least I don't know. I mean, it both in a sense because we're both we're all like slaves to our desires. We're all slaves to what makes us human. But I think that. It's it's just like different facets of of the human condition. I think, like, as you were saying earlier, like uh, yeah, when they could have easily made Chenard like another Frank, but they chose to go a different route of it, explore a different uh, emotion, a different feeling. I think it's just that same sort of thing. So to say I was not yeah, that's... could understand one more than the other it is to imply that I had a stronger feeling of of one of these feelings more so than the other feeling. Do you know what I mean? I've tried. Because I think, like, you know when earlier we were talking about nuance and how I suggested that perhaps human beings aren't very nuanced and that's sort of what yeah. the film's about? Well, this could be the nuance. You either like to be fucked up and want to explore the pleasures out of curiosity or because you just enjoy the pleasure for the sake of the pleasure. 
and you're like, you, you know, you, you've got a, a port, like a, a severe addiction to it all. I'm trying to think if they, if they did a third film properly, if they went down the same kind of um, trilogy aspect, the same idea of having a facet of human extremeness exploited, what they'd actually go for. Greed, I suppose, Fuck, they could push care. on. But I know. Um, maybe it's like Seven Deadly Sins. We've had Lust. We've had. Uh, I suppose we've had Lust and Greed, really. Slothfulness? No. <laughs> it's anything but fucking slothful. Um, I'm trying to think of all the Seven Deadly Sins now. I'm going through Seven in my head. So it's like Lust, Gluttony, Greed, Sloth, Wrath, Envy, and Pride. Pride, I suppose you could mess with. Uh, have someone who. Again, that's, that's going to be like experiencing the utmost. I genuinely don't yeah. know. Like, I feel like you could potentially do all of these things, but I don't feel like I have no other possible way to do it. It's kind of an interesting idea there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't have the writing chops to do that just off the bat, to think of something off the huff. That's not a bad way of doing it, though, going down the Seven Deadly Sins kind of route. Uh, but yeah, either way, Julia ends our uh, lovely little assistant, our innocent poor little assistant, who at least makes a better love interest, well not love interest, friend to Kirsty than the last fucking idiot did. S- Steve was such a non-presence. I can't believe I could still remember his fucking name. Well, he was just some random background boyfriend. I think that's okay. You can have random background boyfriend characters. Yeah, but at least Johnny Depp died in like a cool way. In Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't even get that. Like, fucking, um... <laughs> the, the Cenobites could have killed the kid. Or he could have been eviscerated in fire. I don't know, just something. But Johnny Depp got pulled into the fucking uh, bed at that point. That would have been more fun. We are going to be just pushing through the first half way fucking faster than the second half. He's, yeah, same beats, as we said. Followed through. Julia killing off the assistant. Kirsty comes up. Julia bitch slaps Kirsty into fucking blackout. Jesus Christ, that hand. Yeah, she's pretty strong. I mean, it was the way she, she was like, goading Kirsty into fighting her. Because she knows that Kirsty hates her, and she was just like, "Come on, Ned, come fucking at me!" And uh, Kirsty lost. Pretty. I feel like you can make that a like comedic segment if you added the right fucking sound effect. A proper just stars above her head, just. <laughs> but she went out like a fucking pancake. Not slapped yeah. down. This is pretty good. I the next bit though that. That is where the film starts to get good now. Where we're at now is where the film, in my opinion, starts oh, to get yeah, really cool. Fully. Which is when they bring the when they bring um what's her name Tiffany. back? The girl. Uh Tiffany. They bring Tiffany back and to get her to solve the lament configuration. Now this is where it kinda of gets a bit weird to me about the whole lament configuration because she she's solving a puzzle like it's a puzzle. But at the same time she's doing it for Chinado as the desire to yeah, open I th- I it. think like, that when obviously that I think my favourite line in both of these films is it's not the hands that summon us, it's desire. Yeah. Um, for me, that means that through Tiffany, the professor made it happen. It wasn't Tiffany at any point. She could have not been there. He could have got anyone to do it, and it would have solved itself for me. What That being said, they, they, they leave it open for her. Like, they leave the gates of hell open for her. Well, look, my question is, is she actually in any genuine risk? Like, I like because Pinhead and his posse, well, they call it a gash, Pinhead's gash, strange name, decide to leave her, but then they're like, oh, we'll just leave the door open, though, so anyone wondering after us. God knows why she decides to follow Pinhead, is that? I mean, Kirsty makes sense because she's after her dad, but I don't know why the hell Tiffany... Seems like a day out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, wow. 
these people seem nice. Let's uh, see what they're Switching doing. It, it? It's that will go back to the insane asylum and solve puzzles. It's fucking Sudoku <laughs> or Traverse Through Hell. And uh, fucking Dante seemed to have a laugh. So, oh, <laughs> fuck not. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the rest of the scene, again, colour scheme, very blue. I fucking love it. I like the labyrinth. The labyrinth is very cool. It's just this... Well, it's just a labyrinth, and it's just a fucking maze. It's like, a, you know, you'd expect to find a minotaur in there almost. And then Tiffany ends up at the, the clown place. Yes, it does kind of remind me of um, Tartarus to some extent. Uh, one of the... It might not be Tartarus. I'm thinking of one of the hells in Greek mythology, the like, second one down. I think where they're just endlessly walking. It's got the same kind of feel to it. Or, um, or to be honest, Clive Barker's Book of Blood. Same kind of feel to that, or actually thinking about it, uh, hell in um, Norse mythology to some extent, where they walk on uh, the Valkyries along the pass and all that shit. It, it's got a very morose vibe, very empty feel, not the whole traditional haha torture, pitchfork, fucking pointy stick. Mm-hmm. It kind of has that a bit because, you know, Tiffany does end up going into a torture chamber specifically for her with the clowns. Yeah, there is that. And then also, like, uh, Frank has got one of those as well. But obviously, this isn't hell. This isn't, this is the labyrinth. This isn't hell itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's the um, Cenobite stuff. It's their little realm. Again, the only thing I think they missed out on is having the pleasure side of it as well. Pushing forward. I agree, it, yeah. You should show both to push it on. It's more interesting than just having the pain side thing. It makes a lot more sense. It's not a kind of gotcha then. It's not so traditional horror villain stuff but hey I suppose it's a horror film there's only so much you want to put into it that's fine uh, I'm not sure I like the clown stuff honestly um, I don't mind it I think it's alright I, I, I would like like I, I think it's cool I actually do really like it yeah, look. the more I think about it the more I realise I do actually really like it because I mean although you could like say it's not like executed amazingly or something like that and I, I think maybe yeah uh, sh- could say that, but I, I personally do really like it because I just think it's, I, as you say, I, what what would have made it better is if they showed like, the pleasure side of things. But considering they're not showing the pleasure side of things to show that they are willing to psychologically torture her, you know, it's just it's just a bit of psychological torturing. It's not physical because everything else we've seen is like hooks pulling into you and all this other weird shit. But it's just like it's just sort of getting her into it, you know what I mean? Like, you will ease you in with some psychological torture. Ease you into the pool. Fucking hell. That's one hell of a statement to make about the fucking Cenobite realm. It, I do like that it's surreal. That That is one aspect. A lot of the stuff in this film is very surreal, um, especially especially the clan stuff. But, I mean, you also get... Um, uh, to be fair, more on the nose, Kirsty's um, little personal hell where her mom's picture changed to Julia. Which, Jesus, that's oh, punching yeah. hard. That's a fucking low blow. Or Frank's as well, which is very... There's always women he can't Very touch. nice design, actually. I really like it. It's uh, Frank's has got a kind of Silent Hill vibe to it, I feel. What I think's also... Yeah, it definitely does. It really reminds me of the nurses from Silent yeah. Hill. The way they move so, like, bizarrely. What I, thought, I think as well is really strange. I mean, maybe we should get to it when we do Frank, but the, the door to Frank's house is the same door as... Kirsty's dad, but I guess it makes sense because they're brothers. Is it like their childhood? Yeah, home? yeah, yeah. Oh, it's their childhood like home. So he refused to sell it, so I'm presuming it's that kind of thing. Uh, just building from his own house, and he he must have had bad memories or fucking something from there, or it just takes him back to where he, I don't know, opened the cube originally, and everything went to shit. The carnival how bit, you know, like in 
Kirsty drags her out of it, doesn't it? Doesn't she? Uh, yeah, and... pretty much. She she fucking loses it, Tiffany. She uh can't kind of deal with this stuff. She starts she starts to like shout, doesn't she? She starts to say "mummy," talk for the first time. Yeah, I. I... So she says, "Mummy." It, it's nice to be fair because she's got all the puzzle solving skills. It gives Kirsty something to do. Uh, that that is one thing I love about this film compared to the first one. Kirsty is so active in actually doing stuff. Okay, Kirsty's actually the main character because it felt like she was not the main character for what it felt like more. It was like Frank and Julie's story in the first. Yeah, film. beyond that, she was this she one. Progresses stuff. She actually fucking does something. Yeah. The plot moves by her dictation, not the other way around, which is where so many horror films go wrong. So many. I was talking about it with Final Destination. And this is another film where I think you could have got away to some extent with uh, having the plot dictate where she goes. It wouldn't have been good, but it'd be... There's one thing I've just remembered that we've realised about about earlier on as well that we should have mentioned. Uh, yeah. Kirsty finds the picture of Elliot oh, Spencer. Oh, shit. Uh, and, and pulls it out I of the book. To that, yeah. Kirsty finds uh, spiffing Doug Bradley in his regalia. Chop, chop. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's as she's explained, the house with element configuration. Bloody hell. With element configuration cubes. I'll fucking lose it eventually. It's funny, I got my voice just. Mm. Yeah, after so many hours. Uh, which is directly before she gets bitch slapped. <laughs> yeah. So, because that, that, that becomes important later on. So, what were you saying about the, um, the, the direction of the plot? Be like the intentionality of the plot? Yeah, it, it's just about dictation, about what moves what. And you always should place it so the protagonist moves the plot forward. They're a lot more likeable. That's the problem with a lot of horror films. Where people say that they don't have a likeable protagonist, usually it's because the villain's doing all the work and you don't give a toss about the protagonist. If you go, like Friday the 13th, shit. Except for the Jason Mother segment, the protagonist doesn't do shit. They just get attacked. Uh, Laurie Strode does a lot of stuff during her stuff. Scream has this problem. But in this film... Even though it's an extra dimen- yeah, extra like dimensional threat and all that, and where you could get away with it, Kirsty's actively trying to pursue her father. Like she's she doesn't give a fuck about like Frank and the Cenobites and that shit. She's just, she even goes to Pinhead. Where's my dad? Yeah, but it is something for protagonists to do. It's fucking great, and I, I love it. It's something to actively push towards, which makes them more likable. Because uh, they're not a fucking screaming lunatic that's just running around like a little bitch. Um. You might, might as well go over the Cenobites in uh, their, their two little scenes in kind of one, since we touched on uh, Spencer, Elliot Spencer's picture. Uh, we didn't really go over when they first got introduced beyond just saying it's really good, uh, which it is. There's there's just so many lines in it. The, that's where the hand, the desire stuff comes in. Uh, he stops the other Cenobites taking Tiffany away, obviously, in the first portion. You know what? I don't know why I've mentioned it. It's just really good. <laughs> I'm just going to wank off Doug Bradley for another five fucking minutes and whoever plays the lead female. Oh, it's actually a different actor this time the lead the female Cenobite is. Oh, is it? It's a different female oh, Cenobite. Yeah. Not the I don't think I noticed. Oh, she doesn't actually talk as much in the second film. She doesn't really say anything at all in the second she film. Just, I think finished. she just still looks really good. But yeah, she is a different actor. She says just no, I think, at one point in response to... Oh, yeah. No? Yeah. No! Oh, that's... That's a shame because her voice was really fucking good in the first one. I wish they could have kind of kept her chugging along. Uh, the well, the Cenobites are about to be reintroduced as Kirsty has just picked up Tiffany again. Yeah, it gets picked up and then we get the uh, house that she asks Tiffany to wait out, wait for her outside in, which 
Yeah, which is a bit weird. Like, Tiffany really doesn't want to go in. Me, personally, I'd go for a more, nah, let's just, you know, you just come in with me, rather than fucking waiting outside in hell. Let's have a look together. Fucking let's do this shit together, kind of Care Bear style. Fucking put our rings and prepare, shoot our fucking rainbow clouds, rather than standing solitary, fucking lonely, picked off one by one. But fair enough. Maybe she doesn't want uh, to put Tiffany through that kind of shit. Mm. Uh, House itself, again, I, that I really liked. I think Frank's is my favourite of the three of the personal hells that we kind of see. Or the four, I suppose. We see um, Dr. Chenard get cockholded by Frank. Is the is like little glimpse. Oh yeah, we do, don't we? That was yeah, that was uh that was a way that was a while ago now. I suppose. Yeah. It was like just as they were walking around and we saw him with Julia and it turns into Frank. Does that it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem like that's what it's, Chenard it's, was going for. Well I don't think Chenard really gave a shit. But yeah, I think it was just because like Chenard didn't really seem to react to it besides that was weird. I don't really think he cares much for Julia, but I think it's just the world sort of like sort of like mocking him, you know what I mean? So just showing him weird stuff, you know? Yeah, that's like, rather than or she or just because Julia isn't, yeah, she's not who she says she is. She is working for the labyrinth, and I feel like it's like the world being like, yeah, she's not really, um, she's not really on your side. She's kind of she's here with us. She's not a neutral party at all. You know what I mean? Yeah, she she's preparing to sacrifice him, I suppose. Or, well, I don't know. Yeah, liberate is always the best way of putting it. Um, Mm. Into make him whole into the fucking what he's always wanted Cenobite Smurf <laughs> fucking overdosed on silver nitrate he does look a bit he's, he's a very Smurfy it, it's the blue it's unfortunate on him Every, everything around him I think he's my least favourite design of the Cenobites he's one of the most intricate but prefer the main four I think just about I think he's too far intricate to um Different. Too weird, yeah. I get yeah. what you mean. He's, he's kind of all sorts of funny times with the but, but yeah, that, uh, yeah, before we do get to that, uh, two scenes to really go over with that. Um, the Frank stuff to start with. We're still in, we're still in Kirstine's house. Oh shit, yeah. Kirstine's house first, isn't it? Where they talk back and forth. Hi. And then the, the, the pin, like, Pinhead arrives, and the female Cenobite does talk. She said, Oh, you got away from us before. What was it that time? Didn't know what the box was. <laughs> And she tries to um, send them back to hell, which eh, is going to be a bit of a tricky one, love. Oh, yeah, she does. She tries to solve the box again. They're like, well, where are you sending us? Well, you're already here. You're in our world now. It's it's almost a simplistic dialogue, but it, it's so great. Just everything that comes out of their co- mouths, I fucking love. Yeah, there's no fluff to it, which would be so easy to have him monologuing through all this. I could just You can picture it. He's a very simplistic like communicator, but it's sort of, that's sort of what makes him so intimidating. Yeah, it's exactly the way to do it. No deals, not this time, Kirsty. We have eternity to know your flesh. He just lets her walk around. It's not like you know she could try and she he could try and prevent her from leaving. Or you know, there's a chase scene or something. But oh no, he just goes, go ahead, have explore, have fun, have a look around. <laughs> Oh yeah, free ride. Just enjoy. Well, enjoy yourself. Yeah, it's good. I, I like his like his attitude. He's so good with it. Like yeah, he, there could be a chasey, but he just he just says goodbye. See ya. Have fun. Yeah, so he's got all eternity to enjoy it, and it's uh, it's savoring the moment. The anticipation is often worse than the uh, 
actual event. Well, no, actually, it isn't in this case. The event is far fucking worse than the anticipation. All, all good, <laughs> as far as you take that. Yeah, she obviously ends up uh, running into Frank within all that. And in the house, yeah, uh, so I said very Silent Hill-esque. It's probably my favourite of the four, with the uh, everlasting pleasure that is offered and taken away at the last moment. The ultimate cockhold, more or less, the ultimate cockblock of just these. Mm. It's nurses that won't want anything to do with, as they just slide in and out. It's really strange. It's very unique design. It's like, it does take some. It definitely does feel very Silent Hill, though. But obviously, it's way before Silent Hill, so. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the other way around if they took from this. Have you said? Yeah. The design is very similar, and a lot of the stuff in James's psyche in the second Silent Hill, after looking more into it, is quite similar, actually, to Frank's kind of problem here. Um, actually, that, that might be the only other. Well, yeah, it doesn't have to fucking. Never mind, never mind. I was about to say that might be the only other thing that kind of takes the Silent Hill philosophy to hand, but no, it doesn't. It says it's a very bad philosophy. Very yeah, well, Silent idea. Hill is just sort of like no, yeah, Silent Hill is just it's just this place where horrible shit happened and the witch cursed it. So I, it's, it takes your psyche, your inner problems, and kind of uh, personifies them or monsterifies but it, them. But it is purely yeah. in a bad way. It's not like oh yes, oh my problem. It's nothing good. Fuck me harder problems. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, maybe they should have had uh, Pyramid Head bomb James instead of the nurses occasionally. Just <laughs> different, like hot coffee levels from uh, you know GTA San Andreas. <laughs> Actually, picking different fucking yeah, GTA San Andreas. There was a copy, uh, hot coffee, where there was sex mini games that was cut from the thing. Maybe they should have just done that. You have James change positions on Pyramid Head, just to give it more oh, the yeah. pleasure side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Frank himself during this, he tries to rape Kirsty more or less. Oh, God, yeah, he does. He wants to get her on the bed. He's like, that's why. He, oh yeah, because so the messages that were throughout the movie, because we have like blood written messages on the walls, were actually from Frank, not from my dad. Yeah, that that because that was like part of what motivates. So. That is um, fully canon. I, that's in the book, pretty much that she's brought there on that kind of venture. From what I recall, I don't know how Imagine Larry would come into this. Your- stepdaughter, like your daughter. It's so strange. Yeah, I, I don't know how. It's like your heart. Larry would well niece. Niece, that's the one, yes. Half daughter. Maybe your niece. <laughs> Do you mean daughter? It's almost like there's a word for yeah. that, half daughter. It's fucking, it's so creepy. So wrong, but I suppose it's someone who has witnessed everything physical on Earth, nothing's off the table for him. It's, uh, yeah, it's so human, which makes it so disgusting and so horrific. So he, like agrees to it for a second, then throws the like the bedding at some candles, which ignites the entire place, well, which is a bit strange. She was clearly going to say no. She wasn't going to go yeah, through that like, at any fucking point. Why does igniting a bloody bedsheet destroy the whole place? I'm not sure if the problem was, because originally uh, Larry was going to come in and save the day at some point in the script. Oh, I don't know when. I, I was having a feeling somewhere around now, or po- possibly later on. Uh, yeah, there's a few things that kind of narratively don't quite add up and make sense, which I'm presuming is because they have to rewrite it all here and there. It's, it's nitpicky at parts, I'll grant you, but th- this is one of them where it's kind of... Mm, I suppose they're in hell. I don't know, philosophically, uh, burning up the sheet. Uh, Julian's not philosophical at all. She just rips Frank's fucking heart out of his chest. Yeah, it's funny because they're like all sort of anti Kirstein, but then she decides to take her time out to do that, letting Kirstie letting Kirsty escape. So that's why I reckon, like in the first film, uh, Julia 
just to an extent wants power and the, the pleasure of that. Um, which makes this the culmination of that, where she doesn't need Frank anymore to kind of. She could be grieved the seventh seventh that scene. Yeah, actually, that's. <laughs> or Raph, she could be Raph. I don't know. I think greed. I think she she's kind of power hungry for all these, and she takes that at first through um, Frank is kind of her bad boy persona to live that life through, and at this point she doesn't need him. She's she's outgrew him in a sense. She's yeah, found the labyrinth. She's found the lament configuration. It's it's far worse than anything Frank could come up with ever. Uh, especially just been desensitized just further and further and further. And God knows what she's gone through at this point. That was she just lived in a mattress for years. It's not really clear. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be a miserable fucking life. Granted, how tedious that would be. So it is quite interesting how um, the Leviathan guard, because you know, at this point we have seen the Leviathan, like they, they, the, the ruler of this world in the distance, yeah. and it's literally just a shape. It's the lament configuration because it's solved later and it takes the shape of. Yeah, but what it, it, is. it is just a shape, you know, at the end of the day. Like, like the lament configuration turns into this shape. You know, I take it. Um, you remember it, the Stephen King film? Yeah. Uh, did you see the original Tim Curry versions? Back in the day, with the spider at the end, obviously. I know in the books it's done better, but in the, the show they, they say the spider is the human mind trying to conceptualise that which it can't fully understand. And that's the right. closest it can come to. That's what a pseudonymous configuration has. It's it's the human mind trying to understand something that it physically can't. It's beyond human understanding, human reason. And that's the closest approximation that we can ever come to. Imagine, like, in the visual spectrum, it's fucking far outside what we can actually gather in our own head. You can't analyse it to any extent. I I personally think that's the best way of doing it. Of the labyrinth, because the leviathan, because it is just very bizarre how it is just this huge shape. I mean, it's... I'm I'm better that than it being some sort of, like, man that talks. It's just this ominous shape in the distance. Yeah. It is quite surreal, quite weird. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best way of doing it. But by miles, and I don't think enough um, films have the devil just be kind of an incarnation, or not the devil possibly, but you know, an evil incarnation as just yeah. a shape, a force <laughs> more so than an actual being to some extent. I suppose. Yeah, it's very bizarre. It's it is very yeah surreal. But uh, I really like it. I like it too. It's cool. It's definitely like I don't know how I'd do it any any better because you know, like it is just it is this sort of like sort of Cthulhu-y, Lovecraftian thing of this being that's far outside of your imagination. Incomprehensible. So what else could it be besides just a shape? Because that's, you know, like it's, it exists in a dimension higher than your understanding. It's like, if you were a two-dimensional being, you could not comprehend a three-dimensional being. You would only see the shape of, like, say if it was poking, you'd only see the shape of the front of its finger, say. So you're only seeing, like, this basic shape of, because you can't see its yeah, it's like the nth dimension of it. You can only see like the the third dimension of this thing, which is just the shape. Are you basically describing Bill Cipher from um, fucking Gravity Falls, <laughs> that cartoon show that came out? Who that that cartoon show took a lot from Hellraiser. <laughs> I explicitly, it's fucking brutal. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in that where they they like exchange eyeballs and mouths and shit, and there's a lot of blood in it. It's fucking nuts for a for a kind of Disney show. But yeah. Uh, Bill's too sadistic, though. He doesn't have the kind of uh, eldritch feel to him. So, yeah, we're going with Frank stuff. As we kind of exit the Frank stuff and we come to the crux of what will be the third act, 
and uh, what kind of cements that through, we come forward to um, Smurf Cenobite. Cenobite Smurf. <laughs> Jannard is now a Cenobite. I, I love that line because he was hesitant to do it when uh, you know Judy was con- convincing him to do it. Yeah. And then when he does do it, he's like, ah, this is fucking fucking brilliant. Why did I ever hesitate? Something along yeah, those why lines. Why did I ever hesitate? Yeah. It doesn't quite say that now because at the moment he's just being converted. It's like there's still that bit with Julie and um, Judy and uh, Kirst- Kirsty the, like, falling into the abyss stuff. Yeah, which I don't But like, yeah, I he's, he's put into the machine. <laughs> That's got to be brutal. The, weird, the machine's so bizarre because it's like it sucks out all the red blood and pumps in blue blood. And it looks like it's all sort of like science fiction-y. It's like an actual physical machine. It's not like something conceptual or surreal. It's like it's like science fiction, like a cyborg creating the machine. You know what I mean? And then they've just got piano wire stuck around his fucking head. Yeah, it's such a bizarre... Like a leech sucking on him? I don't know how else to describe it, that thing that's holding him up. Oh, I think that that thing is like the will of the Leviathan itself. I don't know, maybe like when Cenobites are first born and they're not really trusted to walk around by themselves, they're just under direct control for a while. Fucking Cenobites on probation. Maybe, yeah, because later on it sort of turns against him. Oh, it, it kills him with ease. Yeah, it kills him with ease, but it turns like it sort of changes its mind. It's like, ah, this, this Cenobite's not worth it. I do wonder why it does that eventually and what kind of causes that crux if it is just they solve the lament configuration see i don't think i once again i think this thing always chooses when it's to be solved and when it isn't to be solved i think it chooses all right yeah that... the trigger for that is what i would have to debate with myself uh i, I still go based on well actually no that, that does make some sense if it is I, I still go on the desire idea that it's not an actual puzzle that, that there's just at least in the film's canon it's just a yeah. pure design behind a uh, pure desire that solves it. I agree, but in the specific example of the Leviathan itself, when she like solves the triangular type shape thing, yeah, and um, and then it gets rid of Chenard. Like I feel like it's doing that. It's like yeah, you can just go now. Like I don't, I don't know what causes it. Like, maybe it's something to do with like um, all the other center. Maybe because I, I sort of have this other theory where it's like. You know all the other Cenobites that were killed, that sort of learnt that they were human, they turned against Chenard. Yeah. And Chenard was acting upon the Leviathan's win to punish them and kill them. Yeah. Like maybe they still exist and they're sort of, you know, like helping Kirsty and Tiffany and they decide to let it go. Or maybe the Leviathan just decided that he didn't like Chenard for just no reason. Like maybe he just thought that like Chenard just trying to impale um, Kirsty and Tiffany wasn't imaginative enough, so it decides to turn on them. I don't know, but that's, I guess, for the ending of the actual film. I mean, Fetchinard, I know, takes uh, a different kind of sadistic pleasure in it. Whereas the Cenobites, it feels like liberation. They they feel like they're doing the greater good. Chenard, to me, the way he's characterised is just as a sadistic maniac. He's enjoying it and he knows they are. There's at no point where he to me, I get across the idea that he thinks he's doing the world a favour. It's always that uh, kind of villainous, outright villainous aspect of uh, ha-ha, I'm, I'm evil, get slashed. Which isn't a bad thing, again. I, I know I, I kind of sound sarcastic there. It's just natural intonation. Uh, with Chenard, yeah, there's that brutality that goes beyond just torture for the sake of letting people feel the extremities of the bodily function it's him enjoying it 
and purely right. enjoying it. I don't know. It, it, that's how it feels to me. Like he takes absolute pleasure, not in their perceived pleasure, but in his own and purely his own. Uh, and that's why I think the Leviathan turned on him because he didn't have, I don't know, the right philosophy in a way. Maybe I don't know. Maybe. Surely it would have known that beforehand. It's hard to say whether well, Leviathan turned on him, but that's what I. I think the Leviathan turned on him for some reason, or I don't know what that reason is. I suppose it's, it's an unknowable being. I love how the crux of my argument basically there is he's not selfless like the Cenobites are. He's not uh, doing it for the greater fucking good. He's not torturing people and causing immense pain and pleasure selflessly. Like that makes fucking sense. It's a weird like type of morals. It's a morals beyond what we could possibly like understand. So maybe that's why. It yeah, it, it's inhuman, and the, the whole uh, franchise cruxes itself on that. It's the extremes of humanity at all points. I feel there's a difference there. It becomes a lot more human as well when Chenard comes in, a lot more grounded, where he just goes through the hospital killing people, basically. Yeah, it's very... It's just sort of like... I don't know. He's just such a different villain to the rest of them. Okay, might, might as well, um, if I jump into when he's properly introduced, we get the Cenobites. We, we... still need to do the, the Abyss, the weird skin suit thing. Oh, the weird skin suit. Fucking hell, of course. Um... Yeah, so they're, as they're running around, Tiffany and... Um... Kirsty, an abyss just opens behind them. Yeah, it starts like sucking them. It's like a vacuum in space. Yeah, I I don't know where that that kind of comes from. The aspect. Same. It's a bit random. Through. So it just opens up, and um, Julia's I don't know skin suit falls apart. She gets unfolded, takes it off like a fucking onesie, and goes flying and off. She's like holding the lament configuration at the time as well, which is weird. It's like it didn't want. It's like it didn't want Kirsty and uh, Tiffany to lose it because as well later on they find their way back to it so easily. It's like it wants them to have it. It's like the one fucking ring. Yeah, the mind yeah, of it, its it, own. It's, it's like the one. Ring. That doesn't make sense. It is like an evil box, and it thing in the sky looks exactly like it. It's just first another embodiment of the Leviathan, so a gateway in it. It's not just a puzzle. So it's it's like it, yeah, because it's like it didn't. Because she might have been able to drag them into the abyss so long as she wasn't holding it because then it refuses to go into the abyss with her. And even like the skin suit's still holding it at the end and they can just perfectly get back to it when it suits them, just after. Yeah. It's a question that. It's a shame she didn't keep the skin suit. Would you have kept the skin suit? Just I mean, she kind of ends, end, does end up getting using it again, so... I'd have kept it. I'd have gone around committing crimes with it. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Like, is it on a mass spree and then taking it off before the police found it? Granted, I would be covered in blood. <laughs> just, who the fuck did that? Oh, let's look for the guy that's covered head to toe in fucking blood. He doesn't stand out at all, does he? No, no. But, I mean, I wouldn't be on security cameras. It'd be of the woman. So well, the, the actual hospital... Because for a moment, it seems like they might have escaped when they're in that hospital. The weird, like, how hospital. Yeah, I, I don't know quite what happened there. Um, obviously, we'll go through the Cenobite scene first, where all the Cenobites are kind of slashed up. No, that, they, that? the Cenobites come. Oh, that is, yeah, after that is after that, of course. Yeah, with the hospital, it, it's a bit bizarre. I don't know quite what's happened. But you see the uh, reefs at the end of the film, obviously, on the hospital patient beds. So that implies that he did actually come into the real world at some point. Um, you remember, like, the end of the film, there are, uh, like, funeral reefs, like flowers, on all the patients' beds, and they're missing. Because that would imply, like, a big time skip as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm I, just. I don't really know because the end of the film is kind of vague. 
But like either way, they're at the hospital because the people the people in there start having get get the, their own versions of like lament configurations as he start mur- starts murdering them. Oh, there is that actually. Maybe he just like opened up his fucking drawers because he had hundreds of them. They've been giving it away on a fucking like business card venture. Here's another it's fucking lament configuration with each fucking weird. happy mail. He just starts like murdering them. He's like the doctor is in. He starts killing them all one by one. He's chewing the scenery a bit, but it, it's it's kind of adorable. I can get behind it. He's having fun, and I, I like watching him go for it. It's uh, yeah, just just beautiful watching the doctor at work yeah, slashing he away. Just, he, he's like pretty gory the way he slashes their throats and things. Uh, yeah, it's not as precise as the hooks and everything. It does feel very much more uh, ironic, really, for a surgeon. But it, it's very much uh, let's do as much damage as possible and make this as nasty and painful as fucking possible. He seems really, really happy with it all, though. And, like, you know, he chases Kirsty and Tiffany straight into Pinhead's gash. So what do you think of his, um... Oh, his, like, one-note-holding opera singer-style shit? Where he... Where, he, where the, uh... Cenobite goes that kind of... <laughs> shit occasionally. And when he says that... Yeah, like, he holds it, like, twice. It's a bit <laughs> like, weird. Three or four like times. He, like, laughs into it, so I always thought it was just part of his laugh. Because he like, laughs beforehand as he does it. That's a stupid fucking laugh. So in the room we get our third Cenobite conversation of the film. Really being spoiled this time around. Uh, we get a <laughs> pinhead. I hate to say lead Cenobite we'll go with since Clive Barker's uh, so apathetic to that term. Basically uh, treats Kirsty like a fucking, I don't know, like an ex-girlfriend who ghosted him constantly. It's like no fucking ending no, we're out. Running now. No, we're fucking finishing this. Finally. Mm. And then she's like, "Wait, I have information. I have a deal. Well, no, not a deal. Because he's like, no deals. But it's like, I have information. Uh, and he's probably thinking, what kind of fucking information could this like mere mortal possibly have that I would find interesting? Like, what? What could this information be? So then, what could you go with? What is the airspeed velocity? Swallow. <laughs> <laughs> Desperately hope. Yeah, the uh, so the, the reveal of the picture." And showing that they're a human. Well, not really revealed, to be fair. It's, it's gone through that. But the reveal of the reaction, let's say. More I so than anything. Remember. It's, um... I, I think it's important, the philosophy of Hellraiser, really, is an idea of uh, a, a way of thinking that carnal pleasure is the, the crux and the ultimate for a person. That they find out they're human and it, to an extent, just puts a, a fault on them. It puts an end to the drive that they... I don't know, they aren't... It's hard to say that they aren't the pinnacle of their own ideal. They were there was something else for there was something more to them to an extent. See, I disagree. I don't think it is that there is more to it. I think that this is the perception that there's more to it. I think that human beings just like earlier when like I told you when you said it should be more nuanced and it was like, yeah, I'm saying that as a human being who wants it to be more to it because I'm a human being, you know, like the, the bias. And I was like, well, Maybe maybe there isn't more nuance. Maybe you just it's part of your desire to want to think that. I think that is also Pinhead, where it's like oh, he wants to be to be different. Like you know, thinking of a human being, thinking of like the ideal ideal of what a human being is. You know what I mean? Rather than rather than it actually being that way. Yeah, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. That certainly works in the crux of it. Obviously, they they killed off shortly after, which. I don't know if, that, if that's kind of a falter in their beliefs for it, even yeah, momentarily. I think so. I think and then they're stripped. Yeah. 
it destroyed them, which um good thing for Kirsty really. <laughs> good and bad thing because now Chenard is seems like a lot less reasonable. But so you'd rather be smacked over the head with a hammer or cut with a scalpel. It's fucking up to you, I suppose. <laughs> Two and the same for me. Uh quickly talking about the Cenobites as they change their real forms, we got um the, the girl turns into a kind of biker esque woman. Uh, leather jacket, all that stuff. One of them turns into a fat guy. Uh, <laughs> Which one's that, I wonder? It's a bit harsh, isn't it? The love life and fucking mocking him even in the afterlife. He can't even look decent as a demon. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Kevin, that is harsh. Yeah, I mean, he looked, he, yeah, that is harsh. I'm sure he's a f- perfectly nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> he looked he looked better as a human, that's for certain. He looked uh, looked decent, well made up. There you go. Throw a few compliments over. Um, <laughs> what is fucking harsh? The child chatterer. Jesus fucking Makes Christ. You wonder what kind of fucked up shit that child was into. What did that child like? How did that child be selected for Cenobitehood? Like, I mean, either like, is it, was it a fucking emo child? Just life is meaningless. Pathetic. Far beyond that to become a Cenobite, I feel. That's like, what was that kid doing? Like, was that just, kid like trafficking other kids? Like, what no, the people, fuck? <laughs> people go to show and tell. This is my cat, Julie. This is my hamster. These are my bitches. <laughs> <laughs> These are my bitches. I cut off this one. I cut off this one's toe and glued it to her head. <laughs> it just grabs the teacher. You, my bitch. I like to suck toe on her forehead. Whilst the fucker. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Oh, just imagine you're like some sort of fucked up like chocolate milk based economy now with this kid just at the <laughs> crux of it, just doing all this shit in like his kindergarten. You know that um that game where you play as Lucifer, like as a little child, Lucifer's kid, the Antichrist, just push people. I can only imagine that's what this fucking kid was into. I've just had a thought. We're very kind of dark thought about the whole. You know, we've been talking a lot about determinism and free will, and like yeah, you know, like the the extent to which your environment shapes who you are, and to the extent at which we are all just slaves to our pleasure and our desire and our need to reproduce. We are all just slaves to our evolution. Yeah. But so, what if this kid was became a Cenobite and was sort of selected for Cenobitehood, not based on the things that he'd done, but based on the things that he was going to do, because he is just genetically, but determined to be this monster. Like, he might not have even been a fucked up kid, but when he died, and when he, like, found element configuration or whatever, they just knew what was inside of him. Jesus Christ. That's, uh... Yeah, that's miserable. Again, that that's... I know that makes a lot of sense. Fucking hell. And to think that the kid's kind of being punished for future crimes, to going through the same... T- I mean, you saw how painful it fucking was with the older guy. Well, like, in, in, yeah, I think maybe the, the whole... I mean, not necessarily the message, but the whole thing is sort of like... It's... I don't know, is it, is it even punishment for that kid? Like, it, it couldn't have been punishment for the kid to have become a Cenobite? It couldn't have been it couldn't have been punishment even. It would have been something like far back, deep inside of his psyche, something that he'd never, possibly never even unleashed, possibly never even discussed, and possibly never even thought about being a child and all. But it was there in his psyche that that little inkling is what became a Cenobite. That is what when when given the lament configuration, when given that taste of all these things that were like you know like far past his actual age. That he get that he chose to enjoy, not chose, but he he was destined to enjoy. He was destined to become a part of. Jesus Christ, that's that that is horrific. 
I thought I'm so fucking glad they leave it. And they just ah oh, fuck me. I'm gonna move on. <laughs> for the sake of my own fucking sanity. I'm going to go back to slicey slicey doc fucking mindless shit. <laughs> Just for a minute. Uh, yeah, so all the all the Sonobots are fucking killed after that. One by one. With all this. Well, you see them die and they turn back into the human forms. And then uh, slicey slicey choppy choppy doc fucking opera singer, the fat opera singer, goes around trying to... Only he's got like a fucking worm on him and he's uh, got the little strings around his face, the piano wire around him that makes him look... Bloated, yeah. I think would be the word. And the, um, the snake hands, all stop motiony. That look actually, I'm quite, I'm quite happy with oh, those. When you tried to get Tim Finney to come, that like, he was like, "Come close," and one of them turned into a flower. The other one was a finger beckoning her. <laughs> I like that. No, I, I actually really fucking enjoyed that bit. That he's, he's got these really. Oh, it felt so creepy. So uh, kind of Frank style creepy, to be honest. Just yeah, yeah coming like, to my come van, to child. But- it's like he had a fucking McDonald's in his other fucking hand and a little toy. Come into my van, I'll give you this fucking stuff. Yeah, he, he chases them through as it comes to the end stage, um, which there's, yeah, a, a few different uh, motions that go forward. There's uh, Tiffany trying to solve the lament configuration, or obviously as, as I see it, and I think you see it, Leviathan giving up on the guy and allowing them to solve it for the time being. I suppose Kirstie's technically in the comic books at least destined to become another pinhead. Destined to another Cenobite. In the comic, she does become pinhead. Yeah, to an extent that that might be, um, again, down to that predeterminism. Why they let her go, because they don't want her to die yet. Is it's going to be more interesting having her kind of push forward and be... In a sense, though, it kind of fucks with the... Because, like, are they... they, Is the Leviathan selecting her later on because she's destined to become a Cenobite? Or are they sort of crafting her into one? Nurturing to one, yeah. Great one. That's that's kind of interesting on that. Just kind of pushing her towards that end. It wouldn't take much to be. Actually, I don't know. (laughs) You need a certain type of person. You could just break someone. Kirsty seems like like, sort of nice, ordinary person. Everyone's got a breaking point. Everyone loses it eventually, and I think fucking tortured by hell demons. Most people. No, because I feel like being a Cenobite is something more than just breaking it. It's it's something more than that. It is that like deep thing in your psyche where you you want to embrace it and you want to give it to other people as well. Well, it, it, it's um, with uh, Elliot Spencer. It's when he's lost all hope, when every other facet of his life is gone. Maybe for Kirsty. Her dad was everything. She's lost that. Uh, she she was not really going anywhere in life. She uh, had to find a new job when she moved around. She didn't really have any steady uh, you know, romantic interest. No real friends to speak of by the looks of it. Because she was just living with her dad and hanging out with him. So may- maybe it was the case if she just had nothing at that point. She put all her hopes on her dad and then shit. Perhaps. That's it. Fucking done. And that kind of, yeah, pushed her... She'd lost hope in everything else, and all you have left at that point is the base desire. That That's it. And so you take that to its extreme to feel something again. There you go. There, there's a roundabout way of tie, tying in a neat little bow before we finish off. Yeah. Because now it's, it's that sort of fight with, with Chenard and... Well, I mean, yeah. The, the Leviathan presumably allows, allows Tiffany to solve it. Fucking ending Chenard and then shooting out blue bolts of light. 
Yeah, the, the only problem I have with the scene um, is obviously uh, Kirsty dresses up as Julia. Ah, yeah, deceived Chenard for a bit by a time. Into her skin. That's okay. I, I don't mind her deceiving him. There needed to be a way of kind of letting Kirsty do something at the end to be uh, a part of that and be a part of the solution. What I do have a problem with is where she has the Julia skin, holds her hand out to um, Tiffany me. and says, trust me, how about you go, I'm Kirsty, by the way, I put the skin on, just grab my hand. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Or just take the mask off and go, hey, look, I'm Kirsty. Grab my fucking hand. <laughs> yeah. Rather than, trust me, I'm an evil demon that tried to get you killed last time. What the fuck? I mean, then, uh, of course, the absolute ending ending where they walk off into the sunset, all happy-go-lucky. And at least for Tiffany, that's the end of it. She's uh, she's going to survive. We will see Kirsty again at some point. We see uh, the good Cenobites as well on the little pillar of fucking misery spinning around in the last possible scene, you know, where someone ends up dying and providing the blood. Oh, that, that, the CGI, I think, kind of... Not CGI, but special effects kind of goes a bit wonky here. A little bit towards the end, like with the blue balls of lightning that the Leviathan shoots out. Yeah, and the, how the pillar comes out of the mattress that looked a bit shit. Have you seen the, 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 the new pin- Pinhead in Two Fat? Like this Pinhead this coming out this year is uh, going to be played by a woman. So maybe it is Kirsty as Pinhead? I don't know. Because there's a Pinhead oh, nice. remake coming out this year. Yeah, I, I did hear about it and I couldn't remember. It was, um, I can't remember the actress's name. It's got to be better than Fat Pinhead. So Jamie Clayton? Yeah, he's going to play the new Pinhead. I don't know. I'd have to look her up. I don't know what much about her really. I'll There's say. been some really good horror casting this year, though. Uh, really good stuff like um, Resident Evil got Lance Reddick to play Albert Wesker. She's been some really fucking good decisions. So I'll, I'll have to see what happens with that one. I've not got much faith in it because of just how Hellraiser's been, to be honest. But I'll uh, I'll have to see how it goes. Hopefully we're done before I have to cover that one as well. God help me. So, yeah, the ending, uh, you've, you've fan generally, of how this kind of concluded? Yeah, I thought it was... I mean, I think both of these films are pretty good. So, I mean, I think the first one's, like, amazing. I think the second one's, like, decent. Like, good. Pretty good. Not, like, amazing. Actually, I don't, in some ways, I prefer it to the first film. I just don't like the first half of the second film. That's my problem with it. And in some ways, I do prefer it, because I do like the whole exploring the dimension, the whole the weird, yeah, the labyrinth, and I do like the Leviathan. I think, like, the, the sort of why it decided to be, betray Chenard, I think that's kind of... I, I think it's kind of cool that it's left up in the air, but at the same time, I would rather it there'd be some more indication if it did betray Chenard or not. Because, I, I don't know, it seems like the, the person who's creating these films is confused whether or not they want it to be... The Lament configuration controls itself and its own destiny, or people are actually solving it as a puzzle box, which, you know, manipulates it, you know what I mean? I have a feeling I'll get more concrete with the later ones, but yeah, uh, I'd, I'd prefer it nudge on the side of the Leviathan kind of control stuff, personally. Me too, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think you are right. I'd rather it does be a bit more explicit on that. I know it tries to be a bit um, ambiguous towards the whole thing, slightly to its detriment. To be fair, I do love these films. What about you? Yeah, I, I fucking love it. I mean, I'm assuming we're both going to recommend both of them. Like, open fucking arms to to anyone. Um, definitely watch them together if you're going to do it. Or if, if you're only going to watch one, watch the first one. Don't watch the, do second, way. Like the first one. That's just plain awkwardness. Yeah, that's what this film thinks you're fucking stupid enough to do with all the fucking backstory stuff, but you never never do that. Um, so in terms of uh, recommendations outside of the series, 
Uh, so we we do a thing, other horror films or other films generally occasionally that are kind of the same feel, same tone. If you really like these, what else you can try? Uh, so, I mean, first off, I think Event Horizon for the visceral stuff. Uh, that's that's a lot more, a lot less philosophical, a lot more base if you're going to go into that kind of thing. But it's got the kind of gore aspect and it's still, a, I hesitate to say clever, it's still a very well-written film. I still really like Event Horizon, and I think it does still work. Um, otherwise, I might go the the other Sam Neill film that I think me and you watched, actually, uh, in the Mouth of Madness. Oh yeah, I think that's the other one I might recommend. Uh, is that that kind of has the same kind of vibe to an extent? There's there's nothing I'm going to be able to push forward that has the same exact philosophy. Obviously, same. I don't think there's it, many things that really do what Horizon does. I think uh, maybe in the mouth of madness, you could maybe like it's kind of similar-ish in terms of like it being kind of weird and surreal and stuff. But I think in terms of like, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, it's such a bizarre, bizarre one because it's not really. I mean, I get there's there's like an episode of Doctor Who which sticks in my mind of Matt Smith's Doctor Who, which which sort of reminds me of it, which is like two epi- like a two episodes of Doctor Who, which is one episode I don't remember, which was like. Um, the one where there's like a, it's like a, a hotel that never ends, and there's all these different rooms in the hotel, but they're all just a bunch of nightmares. Oh shit! Yeah, with the monster that's um, patrolling down. Yeah, that that uh, that episode of Doctor Who kind of reminds me of this. It's been ages since I've watched it. I, th- I think I only saw it once when it actually came out, which was like 2011, 2012 now. Well, it still says something. You still remember it? Yeah. It definitely reminds it. It reminds me of the labyrinth, but in, in Doctor Who, so it's yeah, it's a lot a lot less gory. And I guess um, this might be like a bit of a cop out, but in terms of like alien, otherworldly sort of things, I guess there's just, I mean, alien itself or like the thing, you know what I mean? Like these things, like the thing is sort of in the same realm of like gore and something otherworldly and weird. Yeah, I know that's I'm always fun with the thing being pushed forward. In terms of effects as well, to be fair, on a purely filmmaking basis, I think they hold a lot of the same. Um, like levels of the thing. Actually, no, I'd say they are. For what they want to accomplish, they're both very, very good. And they both do exactly what they should have. That's for, uh, yeah, uh, fucking nice to have two films I really love for once and being able to discuss them on a kind of different fucking level, different aspects, not just praise them to shit, but kind of go in depth a little bit. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to that occasionally. <laughs> I'm sure it fell into ramble once or twice through my own fault somewhere down there but hey that's what you fucking listen for for some reason <laughs> uh it's, it's gonna be different after all these i'm fully imagining the third and the fourth one the sixth seventh fucking up to ten which uh i'm dragging mark along for there's gonna be a lot more uh fucking angry angry rants a feeling for less philosophy i suppose more like philosophy and nihilism in that nothing matters hellraiser fucking five exists they go to space. Woohoo! Check. Sake. <laughs> oh, why is it always space? <laughs> Every fucking time. I don't fucking know. I suppose they can't do the whole Jason goes to hell shit, can they? <laughs> oh, they're gonna do a fucking. You know, they were gonna do a um a, a showdown kind of thing like Freddy vs Jason style. Yeah, it was gonna be Freddy vs Jason. First Pinhead. Oh right, yeah, I heard about that, but they wouldn't let they wouldn't let uh, Pinhead be on it. Thank God. 
fucking terrible. Then, on that note, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.